Foreign Relations Committee of the United States Senate will come to order. Uh, the chair would note uh, we have a full house today and an enthusiastic uh, audience, I'm sure. Uh, we'd ask you to be respectful, remind everyone that holding up signs or making verbal outbursts during the proceedings is disruptive and uh, appropriate action will be taken. Uh, if need be, we will suspend briefly while we uh, restore order. This morning we have a, uh, a hearing uh, on a matter that is really of uh, pressing national security importance, and that is the, uh, uh, the relationship of the United States uh, and, for that matter, the world uh, with Iran. This hearing is intended to do three things. Number one, uh, we will consider the facts behind the maximum pressure campaign against Iran. We will examine the elements of Iran's necessary behavioral changes that would satisfy U.S. and the world's national security interests, and thirdly, assess Iran's willingness to behave as a responsible member of the international community. Iran's pursuit of regional uh, domination following the 1979 revolution transformed the fabric of the Middle East. The Iranian regime dangerously catalyzed sectarian identities and weaponized sect and religion against its neighbors. The, re uh, the regime triggered a Sunni-Shia war that threatens to unravel the greater Middle East. The nuclear issue is but one aspect of the regime's malign conduct. Indeed, uh, one of the uh, biggest criticisms I had of the JCPOA uh, was that it addressed only the nuclear issue and not the uh, many other troubling aspects of, of, of Iran's behavior. Iran continues to threaten its neighbors with ballistic missiles, conducts criminal maritime activity in international waters, continues to unlawfully hold American citizens, and fuels dangerous proxy conflicts in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon. Iranian-sponsored precision-guided munitions are a threat aimed at the heart of Israel. Iran actively enables Assad's continued butchery in Syria. Additionally, the regime is working to subvert several other regional governments below the level of armed conflict. Iran's support of proxies is perhaps the most nefarious. Uh, ask any of our men and women in uniform who faced Iranian-provided roadside bombs in Iraq. Iran already has American blood on its hands. The lack of a, a, a more firm response uh, by prior administrations has only encouraged further Iranian violence. Inside of its borders, the regime's abuses against its own people continue to be a concern. Iranian citizens live under constant threat of arbitrary arrest and torture for expressing their most basic human rights, including freedom of expression and religion. Indeed, despite the regime's claims of religious legitimacy, it is morally bankrupt. A, a kleptocracy that steals from its people in order to subvert its neighbors. That brings us to a question on the most appropriate policies to curb the totality of Iranian behavior. It is my assessment that the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working and can serve as the bridge to more meaningful negotiations. I note that some of my colleagues have argued publicly that it is not that the maximum pressure campaign is not working. I would be the first to concede that the campaign has not achieved its goals, but on the other hand, it is clearly working. Since May of last year, sanctions have denied the regime over $25 billion in oil revenue. The administration estimates it will cost the regime as much as $50 billion annually. The Iranian economy faces unprecedented strain. After nearly 30 rounds of highly targeted sanctions, the rial has plunged. Inflation is at 50% in Iran and climbing. 
Iran's economy is shrinking at a rate that should alarm uh, Tehran. Nearly a 6% reduction in GDP for 2019 is estimated. In my judgment, these are uh, clear indications and clear evidence that indeed the sanctions are working. For the first time, Iran's terror proxies have seen a reduction in funding. Hezbollah, once well-funded by Iran, has been reduced, as we all know, to panhandling for donations. Iran's proxies throughout the region are feeling the pinch. They're either going without pay or forced to undergo austerity measures to survive. Make no mistake, every dollar, every real we deny the regime is money not spent on terrorism. Iran's requests for total sanctions relief in order to come to the table should be and is a non-starter. The regime must demonstrate it is willing to negotiate in good faith or face continued pressure. The pressure must have an international face. For too long, our European friends have sought to preserve a moribund nuclear deal that offered Iran a financial escape hatch to continue destabilizing the region. We have had numerous conversations with our European friends regarding that. I welcome the joint statement from the UK, France, and Germany following Iran's attacks on Saudi Arabia. Apart from rightly identifying Iran as the culprit, our partners stress the importance of addressing regional security issues as well as the nuclear question. This is well received by us. But they must go further than that. Our European partners must follow the United Kingdom's lead and support the pursuit of behavioral changes on Iran's part. My thoughts on the JCPOA are well known. The deal was a poor one, one that only partly addressed the nuclear issue and importantly, very importantly, ignored the rest of Iran's terrorist conduct and enriched the regime's illicit terrorist proxies. Any new deal with Iran should address all facets of Iranian conduct curbing the ballistic missiles program, ensuring freedom of navigation consistent with international law, ending Iranian adventurism, and the regime's efforts to undermine governments and promote civil war through its proxies, in addition to the nuclear issue. The nuclear solution should not merely delay Iranian development of a nuclear weapon or sunset in a manner that allows the regime scientists to sprint to the finish line. It is in the U.S.'s vital national security interest, and indeed, the interest of the entire world that Iran never possess a nuclear weapon. And finally, a topic has emerged in, in public discourse that should be addressed. There are many that blame the U.S. diplomatic and economic efforts as the root cause of Iran's acts of violence. To you, I say you could not be more wrong. There is only one party to blame for Iran's acts of violence, and, the, and that is the Iranian regime. There's only one bad actor here, and that is the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime is feeling the weight of the growing community against them. Absent an attack on Americans or American assets abroad, we should not be moved by Iranian outbursts or attacks on shipping. We should remain steadfast and continue to apply pressure until the regime can tip, excuse me. We should continue to apply pressure until the regime capitulates and changes behavior, and they will. The Iranian regime is faced with a sharp choice. It is long past time that Iran enter the community of nations as a responsible actor and enjoy the many benefits, advantages, 
and cultural progress that all peace-loving nations on the planet take delight in. Otherwise, it will remain a pariah state. This is an important issue, and I'm glad we uh, have the uh, attendance we have today to examine this issue. And with that, I'll recognize Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this important hearing. And before I get to the hearing, I just want to urge the chair, global events uh, come at us fast and furiously. Uh, this committee historically has played a role in fashioning the U.S. foreign policy. And as we face uh, the challenges uh, in Ukraine uh, and Syria, uh, I hope that the chairman, I know that uh, committee Democrats have written to the chair asking him for a hearing on Ukraine. I think that would be echoed on Syria. These are vitally important issues in terms of the foreign policy of the United States, the role that Russia is playing, Iran is playing. And so I certainly hope that the chair uh, will uh, honor those requests and hold the hearing on both of those issues as expeditiously as possible. Now, this committee has not had a hearing on Iran since March of 2017, more than two and a half years ago, which is unfortunate because it's been one of the administration's biggest stated priorities and one in which I believe there is at least a basis of bipartisan consensus from which we could work. There is no doubt that an Iranian-enabled nuclear state would pose a serious threat to the United States and its allies. There is equal agreement that Iranian malign activity throughout the Middle East, including through proxies and terrorist organizations, is ongoing, dangerous, and destabilizing. There is, I believe, also widespread agreement that the United States should utilize strategic diplomacy, including sanctions, with our international partners and allies to most effectively counter Iran. As everyone I think on this committee knows, I did not support the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. But when the Trump administration withdrew from the deal without a strategy and without partners, I worried that this unilateral <coughs> approach would put our nation on a dangerous and lonely path that would ultimately leave Iran emboldened. Well, Mr. Hook, I'm afraid to say I think I was right. Yes, the Iranian regime seems starved of some financial resources. But as far as I can tell, that's all. It would appear that beyond sanctions, our maximum pressure campaign only extends to sending American troops to protect Saudi Arabia. In fact, the rest of the administration's policies across the Middle East seem only to have emboldened Iran, hardened its political supporters from Hezbollah to militias in Iraq, and most devastatingly and recently helped entrench itself in Basar, in Basar al Assad's Syria. On the nuclear front, as it warned it would, Iran is now slowly winding back the nuclear restrictions the JCPOA imposed, putting it even closer to weaponization. You and your colleagues are quick to point out that Iran has pursued this malign activity in the region for more than 40 years. And uh, frankly, I couldn't agree more. But I don't see your policies meaningfully changing that behavior. You have said that the two goals of the maximum pressure campaign are to deprive the Iranian regime of money to stop its malign activity and to bring Iran back to the negotiating table. However, application of this policy is confusing. One minute the president, the president is willing to make a deal, the next he is threatening to wipe out the Iranian economy. You have utilized just about every sanctions authority available to you, but sanctions are only a viable tool if they are consistent. 
For example, Reza Zaraba of Halk Bank in Turkey was arrested in 2016 in connection with one of the largest Iran sanctions evasion schemes in history. However, while his criminal case was ongoing, we recently learned that the president and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, were trying to get him freed from prison. And I understand you are at least aware of these efforts. What does that say about the viability of American sanctions or this maximum pressure campaign? The Iranians are holding out because they believe for now they can. They will not come to the table for a Kim Jong-un-like photo op. So my fundamental question for you, Mr. Hook, is where are you on the harder diplomatic part of this campaign? How have you utilized the pressure to get Iran to a negotiating table? I also uh, like, would like to live in a world where we could sanction Iran into stopping its support for terrorism, treating its own people with dignity and respect, into releasing all unjustly detained Americans, including Princeton University student Shi Yu Wei Wang. But I live in the real world, where I know that in order to make a deal, you have to give something to get something. Now seems like the ideal time to harness the pressure you've created. I'm curious to know if you've laid out the parameters of a deal that the administration would accept, including limitations on research and development, limitations on enrichment and stockpile amounts, and whether or not you have any sense of what the Iranians will seek in relief from the United States. I'd like to know whether you have directly or indirectly, or through back channels or other countries, sought to engage Iran in that regard. So, Mr. Hook, let's use our diplomatic tools as leverage for what we should be ultimately trying to achieve, a negotiated agreement with Iran, with buy-in from our international partners to meaningfully constrain its nuclear program and address other malign activity, a deal that includes permanent and long-term restrictions on Iran's nuclear capacity, tackles its ballistic missile proliferation, and one that addresses its regional support for terrorism, including through the transfers of weapons. I look forward to hearing about your progress to address this ongoing and pressing national security priority. Thank you, Senator Menendez. And first of all, I want to agree with you 100 percent that uh, this hearing on Iran is important and I think uh, uh, probably uh, one, of the, one of the most pressing issues facing the United States because I think it is the issue that has uh, the most potential for having uh, uh, miscalculation by the other side and winding up with uh, uh, with a situation that we really don't want to be in. I think that potential is there. I think it is there more so on with this regime than any other regime on the planet. Secondly, I agree with you 100% that this committee has historically played a important role in foreign policy. It continues to do so. I note that uh, members of this committee are very active on, uh, in public, uh, making statements, uh, stating their opinions, giving advice uh, to uh, the uh, administration, uh, both of the State Department and the White House, uh, members of this committee regularly, I know, communicate with the uh, State Department and with the White House, and uh, we will, of course, uh, uh, continue to do that. Uh, I want to uh, address briefly, you had mentioned that I had received a letter from you and uh, members of the uh, minority on the committee uh, wanting certain uh, hearings scheduled. And uh, I've taken that under advisement. I'm in the process of vetting that. Uh, I'm doing some foundational work on that. I, I want to talk with, I've talked with most members of the committee, not all, but almost all. I want to talk with other interested parties before I respond to that, and I will respond to that in writing, uh, just as you did. Uh, lastly, I want to correct you uh, respectfully. 
regarding your criticism of the uh, uh, administration's withdrawal from the JCPOA. You indicated that uh, you supported the withdrawal, or I guess you, you didn't support the JCPOA. I don't recall whether you said you support, supported the withdrawal. I did. I urged the president to withdraw. Uh, I believe the, the president withdrew with a very clear strategy, and that strategy was to go back to uh, the pressure campaign, the maximum pressure campaign that was in place before the JCPOA negotiation started. It wasn't called the maximum pressure campaign, but it was the same thing. And I agreed with that at that time. What I disagreed with was to stop the maximum pressure campaign and sit down and start negotiating when uh, they weren't at a point where they, where they uh, uh, had to negotiate. Uh, at the present time, we have a maximum pressure campaign. I reiterated the things that I think are, are pressuring the, uh, uh, the country. I, said, I suspect uh, uh, Mr. Hook will, uh, will talk about that uh, quite a bit more. And uh, my... My urging is that we stay with the strategy that we have, the clear strategy we've had since we withdrew from the uh, JCPOA, and that is continue to exert uh, uh, maximum pressure on the regime until they capitulate, and they will. They will have to. Uh, so with all that, thank you, and uh, we have the Honorable Brian Hook, Special Representative for Iran and Senior Policy Advisor to the Secretary of State. As Special Representative for Iran, Mr. Hook leads the Iran Action Group which is responsible for directing, reviewing, and coordinating all Iran-related activity within the U.S. State Department. We couldn't have a better witness or a more informed witness or a more competent witness uh, to address these issues uh, before the committee. On a personal note, I've had the uh, good fortune to uh, uh, talk to Mr. Hook on many, many occasions about these issues and counsel with him on these issues. I find him to be receptive. I find him to be uh, well-informed and uh, acting in uh, the best faith and uh, best interest of the United States as we move forward. And so with that, Mr. Huck, the floor is yours. Thank you, Chairman Risch, and thank you for your very uh, uh, kind words. Um, uh, I would also like to thank Ranking Member Menendez uh, for his opening statement and distinguished members of the committee. I've appeared before this committee a number of times, but it's mostly been in private. And so I'm very happy to have an opportunity to to have a discussion on Iran uh, in a public setting. I have a longer prepared statement that I've submitted, uh, but why don't I go over some parts of that uh, uh, submitted statement. Um, we have implemented an unprecedented pressure campaign, and it has two objectives. One is to deny the regime the revenue that it needs to fund a revolutionary and expansionist foreign policy. Uh, the other one is to is to uh, increase the uh, incentives for Iran to come to the negotiating table. And if you look at the history, uh, the 40-year history that the United States has had with this republic and other nations have had, you see a consistent pattern that you need to have either economic pressure, diplomatic isolation, or the threat of military force. It's one or more of these factors are what inform Iran's decision-making calculus. And we have kept our foreign policy squarely within the left-right limits of economic pressure and diplomatic isolation. The President has also repeatedly expressed the United States' willingness to negotiate with Iran. Uh, and we are willing to meet with the Iranians uh, without preconditions. We are seeking a comprehensive deal, and it needs to address four areas. It needs to address, in a very comprehensive way, the threats that Iran presents to international peace and security. 
and that is their nuclear program, their missile program, uh, its support to terrorist groups and proxies, and its 40-year history of hostage-taking. Um, this includes the arbitrary detention of U.S. citizens, including Bob Levinson, uh, Siamak Namazi, and uh, Shiyue Wang, and others. Before we exited the deal uh, and uh, reimposed sanctions and accelerated our pressure, Iran was increasing the scope of its malign activity. We now have newly declassified information relating to Iran's missile program that I can share today. While the United States was still in the JCPOA, Iran expanded its ballistic missile activities to partners across the region, including Hezbollah, Palestinian terrorist groups, and Shia militias in Iraq. Beginning last year, Iran transferred whole missiles to a separate designated terrorist group in the region. Iran is continuing to develop missile systems and related technology solely for export to regional proxies. And while we were in the JCPOA, Iran increased its support to Hezbollah, helping them produce a greater number of rockets and missiles. This arsenal is then used to target our ally, Israel. Beyond continuing advancements to its missile program, Iran was also deepening its engagement in regional conflicts. Also, under the Iran nuclear deal, Iran was given a clear pathway to import and export dangerous weapons. Two days from now, on October 18th, we will be exactly one year away from the expiration of the United Nations arms embargo on Iran. Because of the Iran nuclear deal, countries like Russia and China will soon be able to sell conventional weapons to Iran. The UN Security Council needs to renew the arms embargo on Iran before it expires. We have made this a priority. The Secretary has visited the UN Security Council now uh, two or three times to highlight uh, the expiration date of the arms embargo. Today, by nearly every measure, the regime and its proxies are weaker than when our pressure began. Shia militant groups in Syria have stated to the New York Times, this was in March, that Iran no longer has enough money to pay them as much as they have in the past. There was one Shia fighter who said the golden days are gone and they're never coming back. Iran just doesn't have the money that it used to. Hezbollah and Hamas have enacted unprecedented austerity plans due to a lack of funding from Iran. In March, Hezbollah's leader Hassan Nasrallah went on TV and said Hezbollah needed public support to sustain its operation. And in various parts of Lebanon, you can see piggy banks in grocery stores soliciting spare change from Lebanese citizens to support Hezbollah's operation. We are also making it harder for Iran to expand its military capabilities. Beginning in 2014, Iran's military budget increased every year through to 2017, when it hit nearly $14 billion. However, from 2017 to 2018, when our pressure went into effect, we saw a reduction in military spending of nearly 10% in the first year, and in Iran's 2019 budget, which was announced in March, there was a 28% cut to their defense budget, and this includes a 17% cut for IRGC funding. Because of our sanctions, Iran will be unable to even fully fund this thin budget for 2019. 
The IRGC Cyber Command is now low on cash, and the IRGC has told Iraq's Shia militia groups that they should start looking for new sources of revenue. Today, this morning, the IMF revised its economic outlook for Iran and forecasted a GDP contraction of 9.5%. We anticipate that in this year, uh, fiscal year, Iran could be uh, in as much as a 12% negative GDP contraction. So the regime does face a choice. Uh, it can act like a country or it can act like a cause. Iran must change its behavior and start to act like a normal nation or it will watch its economy continue to decline. Our policy is at its core a diplomatic and an economic one. This administration does not seek armed conflict with Iran. We are relying on American pressure and American diplomacy, economic pressure and American diplomacy, to raise the costs on Iran and force meaningful behavior change. Unfortunately, Iran has responded to our diplomacy with violence and kinetic force. In recent months, Iran has launched a series of panicked uh, attacks, what Secretary Pompeo has called panicked aggression, to intimidate the world into halting our pressure. Iran was responsible for the attacks at the port of Fujairah, the assault on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman, and the attack on Saudi oil facilities in Abqaiq. Iran's message to the international community is quite clear. And this is important that I think people understand the regime's paradigm. Iran's message to the world is if you do not allow us to conduct our normal level of terror, then we will behave even more badly until you do. It, Iran has long used its nuclear program in this way and for this reason. The world ought to recognize this extortion when it sees it. When the world comes together to push back against Iran, and we saw this recently in the context of FIFA, which put enormous pressure on Iran because it was denying women from attending soccer matches. And FIFA stood up to the regime, made very clear that there needed to be a change, and for the first time, Iranian women were admitted uh, recently into, the, into a game. They were segregated from everybody else, and they were kept in um, a cordoned area. Uh, but it is an example of, uh, uh, of imposing, sort of uh, isolating Iran and pressuring Iran can achieve the kind of behavior change that we're talking about. When the world comes together to push back Iran, we do see a change in its behavior. And this administration will do its part, and we are succeeding in having others join us. Uh, during, uh, on the Monday of the UN General Assembly, this is shortly after the attacks in Abqaiq, France, Germany, and the United Kingdom called for Iran to accept negotiations on its nuclear program, ballistic missiles, and regional activity. This has been the position of the United States for two and a half years, and we were very pleased to see the E3 um, uh, call on new negotiations so that we can have a new and comprehensive deal. I think it is very much the case that the Iran nuclear deal has come at the expense of missile nonproliferation in the Middle East. Uh, I think I have said to this committee uh, probably a year ago, I know I said it um, a year ago when I was at the United Nations, if we do not restore deterrence against Iran's missile proliferation, we are accumulating risk of a regional war. And we saw this then one year later in the, in the Iranian attack on Saudi. 
Um, we remember that the longest suffering victims of the Iranian regime are the Iranian people. We wish nothing more for the Iranian people than a future with a truly representative government uh, and, uh, and much, a much better future with the American people and the Iranian people. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and other members of the committee, uh, I thank you for devoting a hearing uh, on the subject of Iran, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Brian, thank you uh, very much uh, for those comments. I, I really feel like uh, we're in good hands with uh, your firm hand on the tiller on this issue. Um, with, with all due respect, first, and I want to uh, thank you for appearing before this committee, as you recall, uh, uh, Senator Menendez indicated we hadn't had a hearing on Iran since, uh, I think, 2017. On June 19th, you appeared in a joint committee before us in the Armed Services Committee, uh, along with uh, two other uh, informed witnesses on this important issue. And we thank you uh, uh, for making yourself available uh, to them. Um, you know, uh, the, it's very troubling, the fact that uh, on October 18th, the UN resolution is going to expire on the sale of conventional arms to the, uh, to the country. Um, and, and obviously, we'd like to pass another resolution, but with uh, the, the sellers, Russia and China, having veto power over that, that kind of an action by the UN, what do you, th realistically, what do you think uh, uh, can happen there, and what, what, what uh, is the uh, prognosis on this whole thing? The Secretary and I have had many discussions um, uh, with Russia and China about promoting a more peaceful and stable Middle East. Um, I have had separate discussions with both uh, with China and Russia, talking about uh, the attack uh, on September 14th and the significance of it. And we have to at least be honest with ourselves that the Iran nuclear deal's approach to Iran's missile program facilitated its missile testing. And it also um, allowed Iran to, I think, um, proliferate missiles to its proxies without much cost. Uh, the European Union has not taken one sanction against Iran's missile program since adoption of the Iran nuclear deal. And yet, during this same period, Iran has increased its ballistic missile testing and its, its provision of weapons to its proxies. So. Um, I have seen uh, some accounts where there is a lot of interest in the buyers and the sellers on, uh, on October 18th, a year from now, so that Iran can not only buy conventional weapons, but also sell them. So um, uh, we see a role for the UN Security Council uh, after the attacks of September 14th in Saudi Arabia by Iran. Uh, this, this is um, an act that was in clear violation of the United Nations Charter. The UN Security Council is vested with responsibility for maintaining, for uh, resolving threats to international peace and security, this violation of Saudi sovereignty. And it was an attack, really, in so many ways, on the global energy market, because Iran is trying to create shocks in the global energy markets. And they have failed at that to date. Um, we hope that China and Russia will play a constructive role to get serious about Iran's missile proliferation. Russia and China voted for the arms embargo on Iran uh, around, it was a resolution 1737, 1747, those series of resolutions. So they've supported it before. There's no reason they can't support it again. We think that um, there's a clear case to be made for it. 
in light of Iranian aggression over, uh, not just over since May, but uh, during, as I said earlier, during the life of the Iran nuclear deal. Thank you, I, I appreciate that uh, view. Um, the, one of the troubling aspects uh, of this uh, for me is that uh, the, the ask here by the world to Iran is an ask that Iran has thumbed its nose at uh, uh, in a very haughty uh, manner and just absolutely refuses to even agree what is uh, appropriate uh, international uh, accepted conduct. Um, I, I view it very different than, uh, than the situation with North Korea. With North Korea, you had Kim Jong-un who actually capitulated and said, look, I'm willing to talk about uh, what everybody wants, and that's a nuclear-free uh, peninsula. The Iranians aren't anywhere even near that from an attitude standpoint. People will argue that North Korea, that it hasn't gotten where, we'd, uh, where we want it, and it certainly hasn't. I'll be the first to admit it's a work in progress. But at least it is a work in progress. Uh, to me, these things uh, can resolve if you have two things. Number one, you have uh, two parties that have a common objective, and then once the common objective is, uh, is agreed to, that the two parties act in good faith. We have neither of those here uh, with Iran and didn't when we went into the JCPOA. Um, what, uh, what, what's your view on that, just from a strictly from an attitude standpoint? We haven't seen a change of heart uh, in the Iranian regime. They seem to have doubled down on their strategy, which is a 40-year strategy of uh, deniable attacks, uh, using proxies in the gray zone uh, to conduct attacks against American partners, against American interests. Um, what, what I think I, I would highlight here are the number of diplomatic off-ramps that this administration has offered to the regime. Uh, and it's not just the United States. Prime Minister Abe was the first Japanese prime minister uh, to visit the Islamic Republic of Iran. And he went there, uh, he, he asked President Trump if he thought that would be useful, and the President encouraged him to go. Um, he went, uh, the Supreme Leader put out a series of tweets rejecting Prime Minister Abe's diplomacy, and while Prime Minister Abe was in country, the regime blew up a Japanese oil tanker. You had President Macron, who has repeatedly tried to um, uh, intervene, um, and Iran, uh, has not met our diplomacy with diplomacy. Despite be, uh, offered many opportunities, the president has said many times that he would be willing to meet with the regime. So is Secretary Pompeo. Um, when I was, uh, when, when the United States was in the Iran nuclear deal, uh, and I attended what turned out to be the last meeting of the Joint Commission where the U.S. was a party to, I requested a meeting with Iran's Deputy Foreign Minister so I could talk about the hostages. And so this is an administration that is very open uh, to resolving our differences with Iran at the negotiating table and diplomatically. And I think now that you've seen the, uh, the E3 also recognize the need for a new deal, uh, I think that, and I also would point out at the beginning of the UN General Assembly, I think it was David Sanger who wrote a New York Times story talking about how uh, Rouhani and Zarif are experiencing a very chilly reception at the United Nations. Um, what they did is, uh, in terms of attacking the world's largest oil facility, is indefensible. So I think more people are recognizing that, and that's a good thing for our diplomacy. Thank you. I, I think that your observations about their reactions, particularly what they did to the Japanese, is, is uh, very troubling. And uh, the, the attitude issue, to me, is something that, uh, that, that is troubling. It's, it, everybody wants a diplomatic uh, result here. Everybody wants a diplomatic movement here. 
but um, gosh, they, they just, they aren't showing any signs whatsoever of going in that direction. Thank you for your thoughts. Senator Menendez. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Just two comments to uh, some of the comments you made about, first of all, this is the first public hearing in two and a half years. I believe the public has a right to know about what our Iran policy is, and we have not had a public hearing in two and a half years. Uh, secondly, uh, I, I would just say, as someone who was the staunchest opponent of the JCPOA, that in fact, leaving the JCPOA without a strategy at the end of the day, without allies at the end of the day, has not left us in a better position. I don't care for the JCPOA, but by the same token, leaving without a strategy has not led us to a better position. Uh, Mr. Hook, isn't it true that uh, Iran has hijacked oil tankers? They did take one oil tanker from Omani Waters. Isn't it true that they have struck oil tankers? Yes, they have. Isn't it true that they had a stealth attack on the Saudi Arabia's oil refineries? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yes. Isn't it true that Iran has exceeded the limits imposed on a stockpile of uranium? Yes. Isn't it true that it has enriched uranium to higher levels of concentration than permissible in the JCPOA? Yes. Isn't it true that it has begun using more advanced centrifuges for enrichment? Yes. So when I listen to that, and I could go down to a list of other things, we are right now in a worse position vis-a-vis -vis Iran than we were before, than we were before. Let me ask you something. Withdrawing troops in northern Syria and greenlining Turkey's brutal incursion gives new life to ISIS and hands over the keys to our national security to Putin, Iran, and Assad. All the sanctions in the world aren't going to fix that. Does the administration have a plan for countering Iran in Syria? And if so, can you explain what it is and how will it will account for recent gains by Iran-backed pro-regime forces that are filling the vacuum that we created in northern Syria? Can I, I'd like to answer your first question, and I'll take the, the next one. Um, I didn't pose the first question. I posed the, a question as it relates to this, so would you answer that one? Can I comment on your first question? If I get t enough time, but first let me answer my question. Um, the, the president's decision with respect to Syria uh, is not going to change our Iran strategy or the efficacy of it. Uh, and so we are, um, uh, Iran has given Assad $4.6 billion in lines of credit and billions more. Um, they have sent 2,500 of their own Quds Force fighters and they have helped mobilize 10,000 Shia fighters uh, to support Assad. Um, our, our, our diplomatic work that Ambassador Jeffrey is heading is to, is to ensure, as part of a political solution, that all of the forces uh, in Iran under Iranian control have to leave Syria. And we are withholding our reconstruction assistance for Syria as one of the levers that we have. And, and, and you really think that after having withdrawn and, and let uh, the Iranians, uh, what we have here is something that we, by our presence, helped avoid. We have the possibility of a land bridge that Iran has sought over Syria to attack our ally, the state of Israel. What commitments do we have from any of these parties that, in fact, they will prevent Iran from moving fighters and supplies from Iraq through northern Syria? I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Iran isn't a, an agent of Russia. They have their own interests. They have spent their own blood. 
Russia is not going to tell them, okay, Iran, now thank you for your help. It's time to get out. They're going to have their own interests. And all we have done here is perpetuate their interests and created a greater risk for our ally, the state of Israel. Well, I'd say this. I think that um, our pressure uh, on Iran uh, threatens Iran's position in, uh, in Syria in three ways. It starves the IRGC uh, and Hezbollah of operational funds. It disrupts Iran's financial support to Assad. I talked about the billions of dollars that Iran has provided. Our pressure is making it harder for Iran to fund, to give Assad financial support. We're also impeding Iran's ability to sell oil to Syria. And we have sanctioned uh, one uh, shipping, oil shipping operation, and we've sanctioned Russia and a Syrian. Um, uh, one of the ways that the Quds Force has been financing its operations is through illicit oil shipments. And so we're going to keep after the oil. We're going to still keep after that. We're going to continue our do, pressure do campaign. We, do we have, let me ask again, do we have any commitments from Turkish or Iraqi authorities to prevent Iran from moving fighters and supplies from Iraq through northern Syria? That is something I've been with the Secretary to Iraq. We discuss that on a very regular basis to do everything but we, we have can no commitments. To, Hmm? We have no commitments. Um, I, 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 the specifics of this, I'm happy to follow up with you in terms of which uh, minister or leader we spoke with about this, but we have raised this issue repeatedly as a security concern. Well, it seems to me that here's, here's a perfect example of what maximum pressure without a strategy that ultimately brings Iran to the negotiating table leaves us in. More attacks more consequences, greater breakout, uh, limiting the breakout time to uh, the possibility of a pathway to nuclear weapons, uh, a land bridge, uh, in addition to the President's decisions to withdraw precipitously out of Syria, a land bridge for Iran to attack our ally, the State of Israel. If that is success, if that is your measurement of success, then I, I, I have a real concern of where we're headed. Thank you, Mr. Uh, just two quick things on that. One. Um, when the president got out of the Iran deal, Secretary Pompeo released our Iran strategy within a week or two. We did exit the deal with the strategy, and the, and the secretary put in place the very clear articulation of the 12 areas where we need to see a change in Iranian behavior. So that speech that he gave in May of 2018 is the same policy that we're pursuing Well, that's today. a wish list. I'd not like, a wish I agree list. with the wish list. It's not a wish but list. That, it, I, you think you're going to get everything that Pompeo listed, you're going to give virtually no relief to Iran, and they're just going to succumb. No, that's Well, not I'd true. like to believe that's the real world. Well, I, I, but that's not the real world, Mr. Hook. Well, so here it's is not the, the real world. Here is the real world. Um, we don't negotiate with ourselves, and the 12 uh, areas, requirements, are a mirror image of Iran's threats to peace and security. And most of those 12 you can find in a UN Security Council resolution. Do you that believe that the more you ask for, the, the more you have Senator, to give? Senator, allow him to finish his sentence. Well, he's taken up my time. He's gone beyond Your my time. Time's yeah. over. I saw the chairman went beyond his time as well. So. The other thing that I would, th th there is, I've heard this sort of, I, I, I've heard it often said that, that there is this, that during the Iran nuclear deal, Iran was behaving. And since we got out of the deal, things have gotten worse. And I'd like to, Mr. Chairman, submit for the record, this is, a, this is 71 items of, of Iran regime malign activities during negotiations with Iran and during the JCPOA. It is 71 items long. And I think that we don't, we don't do ourselves a great service about understanding the historical record if we ignore what Iran did during the negotiations 
and while the JCPOA was being implemented. So I'd like to submit this for the record so that people can review everything Iran was up to while we were in the deal. Thank you, and that will be submitted for the record. And Senator Menendez, I'll give you the last word. Well, I just let me ask you just a simple <clears throat> question. Isn't it just virtually anywhere in the world, the more you want, the more you have to give? Or do you believe you can get everything that Secretary Pompeo asked for and just return to what was the status quo with the JCPOA in well, terms of Iran's relief? We, we tried, the United States tried taking a bifurcated uh, approach um, by only focusing on one aspect of Iran's threats to peace and security, and it was the Iran nuclear deal. And that has enabled Iran to expand its missile testing. That's not responsive to my question. It's a simple I am, question. Well, I am As a simple proposition, it. the more you ask for, do you not expect the more that you will have to give? And yes, the administration and, and, in contemplation yes. of that. And if, if you look at the strategy that we laid out in May, Secretary Pompeo said, at the conclusion of an agreement, which we will submit to the Senate as a treaty. Which we applaud. And, I, and, and I've worked very closely with this committee to show that I think that we very much need to have full Senate support for what we're doing. And if we are able to get into talks with Iran, you will be fully apprised. It is, it is also the case that in that strategy, Secretary said that if we can get a deal, um, we are prepared to end all of our sanctions and to restore diplomatic ties with Iran and to welcome Iran into the international community. That's very significant. That's never happened before. Even under the Iran nuclear deal, many of our sanctions stayed in place, and so have some of the UN sanctions. They're going to start on, on, unraveling, but we have put out very significant incentives for the regime. And the, and the decision they face is whether they're going to come to the table and recognize that they are in, they're, they're, it's deepening isolation, come to the United States, come with the United States to the table and other countries to negotiate a full and comprehensive deal. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I would point out during the JCPOA debate, it was my amendment that would have deemed that a treaty. We should have voted that 100 to 1. We'd be in a far better place today had we deemed that a treaty and treated it as such. Uh, Mr. Hook, uh, first of all, thank you for your service. Uh, as a, somebody who has observed Iran for a long period of time, you've laid out in your testimony their actions. You know, they, they want to be a nuclear power. They're developing ballistic missiles. They continue to support their terrorist uh, proxies around the world. What is their ultimate goal? Do you, do you have sense in terms of what they are actually trying to achieve? It's, it's a good question. It's, um, I gave a speech a couple of weeks ago looking at the sort of history of the regime. I think in many ways it's the last revolutionary regime on earth. Um, if you look at its founding, it talks about um, exporting revolution. And it has a clerical model where you have clerical and revolutionary oversight over what looks like a sort of fairly Westphalian system uh, with, with a president, with a foreign minister, with a military, but in fact also has this revolutionary guard corps, and I highlight revolutionary guard corps, and a Cuds Force component. Um, it has a, a, an opaque financial system so that it can move money around the world for terror finance and money laundering. But it's all in the service of um, promoting um, clerical oversight, weaponizing Shia grievances, uh, undermining the sovereignty of, of regimes around the Middle East. Are, are, they, are they trying to top, do they want to top regimes and put in place some kind of uh, Iranian surrogates or total Iranian control over areas of the 
of well, the yeah. region? I mean, Iran, they, they want a greater Iran? Yes, they would like a greater Iran. And so when you look at their engagement with Iraq, uh, if, if you look at where they engage uh, in Lebanon, where they uh, take a country like Lebanon and th that military should have a monopoly on the use of force, but then Hezbollah undermines that. They are trying to do the same thing in Yemen with the Houthis. They have an ambition there to become a power broker in Yemen on Saudi's southern border so that it will be in a position to attack uh, UAE, Saudi, Bahrain, and also uh, the U.S. Navy through the Bab al-Mandeb. But, but to eventually install a regime in these countries either favorable or under direct control right. of Iran. Yes. That is their ultimate goal. Yes. And we need to understand that. The situation in Syria is incredibly complex. I would like your evaluation of what, what is the current relationship with Iran and Russia as it relates to Syria? I think Russia has tried to have it both ways, uh, both with Syria and with Israel. And so I think Russia knows that it's going to have a very hard time getting into a post-conflict stabilization for as long as Iran is using uh, Syria as a forward-deployed missile base to attack Israel. And so I think there are incentives for um, Russia to um, direct Iranian forces out. At the same time, I think they, that, that Russia has also said to the Israelis, you should do whatever you need to do to defend yourself against attacks coming from Iran inside Syria. And so they have done, I think, an artful job, uh, President Putin has, of, of playing both sides. Um, I think it is going to be very hard um, for Syria. Uh, they're not going to see a, a, a return to normal um, until they direct the forces under Iranian control to leave. And so I think there are incentives uh, for President, uh, for, both for Assad and for Putin, to get to a post-conflict stabilization. But for as long as they have Iranian forces there uh, with another agenda, it's going to be hard to get to that okay, point. But there's not a cooperative relationship between Russia and Iran in Syria. They, they, they're both supporting the Syrian regime, but they're really not o overtly cooperating? I think, I think in this case, they both have a common objective of saving Assad. Okay. What is Iran's attitude toward ISIS? Um, that is something which, during the, um, uh, th th there are people, I would probably defer to NEA on this for the, for the more specifics around it and the history of that that occurred, I think, in the last administration. Um, uh, in, in, in our uh, mission uh, to defeat ISIS, the president made a priority coming into office and working with, uh, with, with Secretary Mattis to um, uh, liberate the territorial caliphate um, from uh, from uh, all the lands under that control, but don't have anything to add beyond that. So I mean, Iran just they're just kind of agnostic. They're happy to have ISIS uh, destabilize the area. No, there, I would. There's no there's no evidence of support in any way, shape, or form. This is something which I, I would I would I would probably defer to my colleagues at state on this who have been point on the uh, counter ISIS campaign okay, for the thank Pacific you, thank you, Mr. Sons. Chairman. And I'm happy to take that as a QFR. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Hook, thank you for your service. Uh, in your statement, you point out of the concern of a miscalculation in the region that could spread into a much more serious conflict. Uh, clearly, uh, the Iranians could make a miscalculation. Clearly, the Saudis could make a miscalculation. 
And now Israel might make a miscalculation based upon the increased concerns about Iranian strength. So I want to just back up one moment to set the um, history here. Along with Senator Menendez, I opposed the JCPOA, and I strongly disagreed with the administration's decision to pull out of the JCPOA. And you pointed out that you wanted to go to a maximum pressure campaign against Iran. I support that. <clears throat> you also point out that prior to pulling out that Iran was violating international standards. And we all knew that. It was not on the nuclear side. It was on the non-nuclear side. It wasn't covered under the agreement. They were in compliance with the agreement. But as President Trump had indicated his displeasure with the JCPOA, you and I had conversations that we now had maximum pressure with our European allies to get their support for sanctions against Iran on the ballistic missiles and other issues in which they were doing activity that was against international norms. And in fact, we could have had a maximum pressure campaign against Iran on the activities that you're referring to, but instead the president pulled out of the JCPOA. That's the facts, and you and I know that even the EU was prepared to go along with us on sanctions on non-nuclear, provided the United States stayed in the JCPOA. So I just want to underscore the point of Senator Menendez. Since pulling out of the JCPOA, look at the facts of what's happened. It's emboldened Iran. Look at their attack against the Saudi oil field and their capacity to do major damage. We, they have partnered and strengthened their position with, with Russia and the Assad regime in Syria, giving them additional capacity. They are now closer to restarting a nuclear weapons program than they were when we were in the JCPOA, and we have no ability to challenge that within the JCPOA. And now you talk about the UN vote on the embargo, conventional weapons, and the United States' influence is so much weaker today because of we've isolated ourselves. We don't have the support of China and Russia, and we've lost the credible support of our European allies in regards to Iran. So when you talk about a maximum pressure campaign, it seems to me we gave up that maximum pressure when we pulled out the JCPOA and isolated America. Now, I want to get to the most recent decision on, uh, the, on President Trump uh, pulling out of northern Syria with a conversation with President Erdogan, and then the, Syrian, the Turkish forces going in and our our Kurdish fighters that were with us in northern Syria now engaged in their own military campaign. It is clear from the facts on the ground that it's given additional influence in Syria by Russia, and there is now concern that Iran can be emboldened, including in the bridge to Israel's border. So I just want to get your view. The fact that we now have allowed the Turkish forces unembedded without U.S. presence to go in and fight the Kurds, does that help us or hurt us in regards to Iran? It's a simple question. I hope we can get an answer to that. Um, we are uh, very comfortable with our Iran strategy in Syria. 
Uh, but, but the specific question I'm asking is about the current situation with the Kurdish fighters now in, engaged with the Turks. Does that help us or hurt us in regards to the Iranian strategy? It does not hurt our Iran strategy. Um, and so... So, no, it's, it's helpful for us in regards to Iran to have the Kurdish fighters who were our stabilizing force in northern Iran keeping Russia and Iran out. That's a positive view? Well, our forces in northeast Syria have never had an Iran mission set. But now that we're not there, and we now have the ability of Russia to take a greater capacity in Syria, allowing Iran then to come into that, it, it, to be more emboldened in Syria, you're saying that doesn't affect us? No, because our strategy from the beginning in Syria has always been around using our diplomatic leverage, withholding reconstruction assistance, so that we can get Iranian forces under Iranian control out. And then our maximum pressure campaign, remember while they were in the deal, they were able to give Assad many billions of dollars. We I are- I understand we are, the money, but I'm, I'm trying to get to, you, so you don't think there's now a greater chance of a miscalculation with Israel, looking at the Iranians having greater access to Syria that could use drones in a similar type of an attack that we saw against the Saudis? Don't you, you don't think that's a greater risk today because of what's happening in Syria? We don't see it as a greater risk today, no, because Israel will continue to do what it needs to do to defend itself. We know Our, that, but suppose Israel now is on higher alert. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. So if you look at our core drivers from the beginning, and nothing has changed with, with, with the president's recent decision on withdrawing troops from Syria, our strategy is around denying revenue and using diplomatic leverage in Syria to get Iranian forces out. It is undeniable that during the Iran nuclear deal, Iran was able to use the sanctions relief and, and give Assad many billions of dollars and 12,500 fighters. That, that was the big mistake. And now we're trying to do everything we can to put this back in the box. And my last point. But it starts with denying them revenue. And we've done that. Iran's military budget is down 28%. I'll just make my last point on that. Yeah. We could deny them support from Europe on sanctions, but instead we chose to pull out the JCPOA rather than working with our European allies. You know that was on the table before the president pulled out the JCPOA, and we lost that opportunity to get European support for stronger sanctions. So let me, let me make one point on that, which I think there's been a lot the last couple of years. The president directed negotiations with the UK, France, and Germany over six months to see if we could fix the deficiencies of the Iran nuclear deal. And I led those negotiations, and we met in Paris and in London and Berlin and Washington multiple times over six months. We made a great deal of progress around the weak inspections regime and the absence of intercontinental ballistic missiles from the deal. The biggest priority was ending the sunset clauses. And for as much as people, uh, supporters of the deal, may like the deal, it expires. It did not permanently address Iran's nuclear program. And so I spent six months working with the Europeans, and we, and the biggest thing for us that we, I think we achieved largely agreement on inspections and on ICBMs. We were not able to get agreement on ending the sunsets. Turned down and, greater pressure 
on Iran from the financial point of view because of the length of the JCPOA. Say that one more time. I didn't understand. You turned down the opportunity to get Europe with us on sanctions against against Iran because you wanted a longer term on the on the nuclear provisions. I understand that. Yeah. But you turned down maximum pressure in order to get an extension of a nuclear agreement that there was already compliance on. It's inconsistent with what you're saying now. You pulled out to put additional pressure on Iran. It's inconsistent. Well, I would say two things. One, we tried to remedy the deficiencies of the deal, and I don't think. I don't know who here supports ending the nuclear restrictions on Iran. And they need to know because the- Well, you know, under, I, support, under, I supported your efforts to extend that, but the nuclear agreement did not have any limitation on time. It was a permanent uh, restriction on Iran. It's not. Yes, it was. It was. They were not allowed ever to have nuclear weapons. The question no, no, was whether no, provisions no, on the, the- The Iran nuclear deal expires. It's going to start expiring a year from now. Guys, hold it. No, it's, uh, it, it, you'll it, get your shot at him, Senators. Right. I appreciate that. Let's uh, we're, we're well over time, and uh, it, it is this is a good experience to go through to, to litigate this, but uh, let's try to do it as simply as we can. And with that, uh, Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Hook, um, I, my reading is that Iran's uh, uh, power position uh, has changed quite significantly as a result of uh, Turks uh, going into Syria, uh, wiping out our, our friends, the Kurds, uh, the Kurds that are remaining uh, rushing to Assad and, and uh, pledging support to Assad. Um, uh, this, this changes the dynamic for Iran, I presume, in Iran's view, in a very positive way. I presume Iran was, was smiling from ear to ear as, uh, as, Turk, as Turkey uh, rushed into Syria. Am I right that this really changes the dynamic for I Iran uh, in Syria and perhaps uh, regionally? Um, we do not believe that it changes the dynamic with Iran uh, because in Th terms of our strategy... Things, things, aren't things are not better for Iran in the Middle East as w we have gone, as Turkey has hit the Kurds and the Kurds have now allied with Assad. So Assad is, surely Assad is stronger. And this isn't good for Iran? If, if, if you take a look at what our uh, U.S. Special Representative Jim Jeffrey has said for some time now, um, our, 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 our military is in Syria for ISIS. Our diplomacy is focused on Iran. And, that, and so that's why Jim Jeffrey and I work together very closely, because what I do on the pressure side um, and, and what he does on withholding reconstruction assistance is mutually reinforcing. I, I, I hear you, but diplomacy has impact if there's a military uh, that's strong and in the region. And when our ally now aligns with our uh, uh, adversary, Assad, that is, uh, in my opinion, not helpful for diplomacy and not helpful for our interests in the region. Um, that's so dramatic. A, perspective on your part, that there is, that Iran is not celebrating what's happening in, in Syria uh, is extraordinary to me. Uh, let me. Let me turn to a different area, which is that uh, I, I do agree that, that, uh, that there is a, an enormous benefit in putting pressure on Iran. Uh, whether it's maximum pressure or not, I don't know. But I believe that a nation that decides to go nuclear uh, should suffer a dramatic cost for doing so. Whether or not they're at their knees or not, I don't know. And it's very hard for us to tell from the outside what's actually going on inside Iran. 
but clearly uh, it would have a dramatic effect if other nations were to join us in applying maximum pressure. What, what are the prospects for our European friends, uh, for other nations around the world joining us, either with a snapback provisions being applied or, or, uh, uh, or not on a snapback basis? What are the prospects of us actually seeing truly maximum pressure? Because it's applied not just by us, but by our friends as well. There is no precedent uh, in Iran's history for the kind of pressure that we have put on them. And the regime has said this publicly. Uh, they have, um, uh, that they're experiencing the kind of economic uh, contraction that, w that is and will be worse than what happened during the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s. Um, we have done a very good job of uh, drying up Iran's sources of export revenue, but we've also done, we've devoted as much energy to enforcing our sanctions, especially in the case of the oil sanctions. And I think that uh, the fact that the UK, France, and Germany have now acknowledged something that we saw uh, some time ago, that the Iran deal is insufficient to address Iran's threats to peace and security, and that when you are inside the deal, you can't touch your energy or your financial sanctions. That was the deal. So being out of the deal gives us a great deal more leverage to accomplish the objectives of denying Iran a nuclear weapon yeah, and on missile proliferation, which I think yeah, other countries Mr. are starting Hark, to I'm, recognize. I'm not one of those that, that thinks we should be back in JCPOA, right. uh, and, uh, and, and I do believe that there should be an enormous price paid by a country that decides to go nuclear. Uh, I don't know whether we'll actually ever see Iran make a different decision. But, but, but my question is, is there some prospect of our being able to get other nations to join us in applying maximum pressure on Iran, or must we continue to do it alone? Uh, I think it depends on how, so Europe has done a lot. Um, they, they have not reimposed the financial sanctions that were in place, but when you look at what Europe um, has done uh, since the time that we left the Iran deal, uh, it's a fairly extensive list. and. They have uh, uh, Germany and I believe France and the UK have all denied landing rights to Mahan Air, which is an Iranian commercial airline, which is a dual-use uh, commercial airline and also ferries terrorists and uh, weapons uh, around the Middle East to their proxies. Um, the EU did impose sanctions on Iran's Ministry of Intelligence for terrorism in Europe. And you've also had the E3 send a number of letters to the UN Security Council condemning Iran's space launch vehicle testing, Iran's ballistic missile testing. You had um, Boris Johnson a few weeks ago said the Iran deal is a bad deal with many, many defects. That has been our position. Mr. Hook, my time is up. I, d I just want to point out that the letters and speeches are, are delightful, but, but uh, crippling sanctions uh, on the part of our allies would make a real difference, I believe, in in exacting a very substantial price on Iran and, and hopefully causing a dissent within their own country. But, but would, I think it should be a high priority of our country to get other nations to join us in those, in those crippling sanctions. And My time is up, so I'm going to pass the time over I, to the and chairman. And I agree with that last point. And, and can I say one other thing on that? As I'm happy to submit for the record. This is three pages of European action starting in July 28th, um, going up to September 24th, 2019. I, I talk on a weekly basis uh, with my European counterparts, not just the E3, but uh, we just had Poland in town. 
Um, we, we did a global ministerial on the Middle East to promote peace and stability in Warsaw, Poland. We had 65 nations from almost every continent attend. So we have made working with our partners a priority. Uh, that's under Secretary Hale, Secretary Pompeo, Deputy Secretary Sullivan. And so uh, I'm happy to submit for the record uh, uh, three pages of everything that Europe has done to um, counter uh, Iran's threats. Thank you. Those uh, will be included in the record for full disclosure to everyone. And with that, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Chairman. Chairman if I, the, uh, without taking the Senator's time, can you tell me how we're going to proceed since votes have just started? Is the Chairman intending to keep the hearing going as members come in and out of vote? Well, I think this is an important hearing. And I, I agree. I think uh, probably uh, what we ought to do is get down to the very end and uh, take a short break and uh, everybody go vote and then we'll come okay. back here. Thank you. This is, uh, I know there's I see a lot of anxiousness on my uh, friends' parts over here that would like to bite the apple, and uh, I want to give them every opportunity to do so. So with that, Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Hook, I, I want to follow up on the line of questioning that my colleagues have pursued with respect to Syria, um, because the shift by Kurdish forces who were our partners in the fight against ISIL away from the United States and into alignment with Iran and Russia I believe is going to have serious implications for Syria and for the region. And it's hard for me to understand that you think there's no, or at least you appear to think there's no connection between what's going to happen in Syria and our efforts to address what's happening in Iran. Now, the president said on Twitter that anyone, and I'm quoting, anyone who wants to assist Syria in protecting the Kurds is good with me, whether it's Russia, China, or Napoleon Bonaparte. I hope they all do great. We're 7,000 miles away. That's an end to the quote. So does this anyone, who the president is referring to, also extend to Iran? And are you concerned about a Kurdish-Iranian alliance in the Syrian conflict and what its impact on U.S. interests in the region will be? Um, as I said earlier, um, Syria is not going to see a return to normal until they direct forces under Iranian control to leave. And we do have enormous leverage in that space. Speaking uh, just as can, you, can you just further elaborate what our leverage is? Because it appears to me, given the pullout of troops, and I appreciate what you're saying about reconstruction dollars, but the fact is they are years away from reconstruction at this point. And so we had a very small amount of troops partnering with Kurdish forces to maintain a significant area in northeast Syria that was stable, where the United States had influence, where we were wanted. And what you're telling me now is that we have pulled out those troops and we have greater leverage than we had before? I, I didn't say that. Um, what I am saying is that our pressure campaign, because as I said, Shia fighters don't have the money that they used to, Iran doesn't have the money that it used to, to support Assad and to support its proxies. And so Iran is going to face a dilemma. They can either support guns in Syria or prioritize the needs of their um, own people at home. And that is the choice that we are, that we are trying to force upon the regime. And, and, and so have we not just empowered them further by pulling out of northeast Syria and giving Iran more influence in the region and more ability to negotiate with Russia? You know, I heard the Obama administration talk about how we were going to starve Syria of the funds they needed to continue to engage in a civil war, and that never happened. And what our experience has been 
with crippling sanctions, I think they're important, but they are not the only way, the only tool in the toolbox for us to address these conflicts. So I, I guess I would go on to ask you, in September, you noted that it's clear we need to reestablish deterrence. We're one missile strike away from regional war. I think that's a quote. Um, could you speak to how this administration plans to reestablish deterrence against Iran? And what specific options, other than sanctions, are on the table to penalize Iran for its destabilizing behavior? Well, the first thing you have to do is to stop doing what's not working. And there is no question that Iran increased its missile proliferation and its missile testing. I talked about newly declassified. I, I, I don't want to talk about JCPOA. What I want to talk about is what the administration has on the table now to address Iran's destabilizing yeah. behavior. The, um, and I'm making that, but that is part of it, is, is we have to stop doing what we're doing or we're going to get more of the same. So we broke the paradigm of not having sufficient leverage and pressure to drive up the cost of Iranian aggression. And so we are only, what, five or six months into having all of our sanctions imposed. Because for the first six months after getting out of the deal, we granted a few oil waivers. Now, since May, we're about five or six months into this, and we have achieved record results. But we also have to understand that we never promised how, that we how would. How do you define record results? Because the regime is materially weaker today than when it was when we took I, office two, two and a I, half years. I appreciate that. On paper, that that's the case. But it is. It's but not just when on we paper. look at the behavior that they are exhibiting, in both in the region, and in terms of our interests in the region, they have increased that destabilizing behavior. It, it isn't an increase. I, I mean, I'm, I, I do want you to take a look at all 71 instances of this. Iran, for 40 years, has been running a steady state of aggression and using terrorism as a tool of statecraft. And as I said, there is, they want the world to accept a normal level of terrorism, as they defined it. And then when the world stands up to them, they increase it to a level to put pressure on people so that they'll return to their normal level. M we Mr. are Hook, breaking I, this paradigm. I have heard you make this argument this morning, and I appreciate right. that that's an argument that the administration has. I, I'm just not buying that argument at this point. And what I'm asking is, what are the plans what are the additional plans beyond sanctions that will address their behavior? And, and so, my time is up, so I'm not going to ask you to respond to that. But I do have one final question that I'd like to ask you, and that is, do you believe that ISIS has been defeated in Syria? The territorial... That's a yes or no. The territorial caliphate has been defeated. We have liberated all the land that was held by ISIS. Now, it's a separate question on the forces of extremism. That's a separate question. Okay, no do you one believe that the forces of extremism have been defeated in Syria? There, there is no one who will claim that, that the forces of extremism have not been defeated in the Middle East in any administration. There is, there is a crisis of Islamist extremism that has been going on for many decades. And we have uh, that put we just exacerbated by pulling American troops out of northeast Syria, and we have given rise to the potential for ISIS to come back yeah. in Syria, in Iraq, all across the region, and that empowers Iran. And, and Thank I think you, Mr. It, it is clearly the case that that Iran, if you talk to countries in the region, and here's an area where you're going to hear complete agreement from the Israelis and the other Arab countries on the front lines of Iranian aggression is that Iran expanded its power 
over the last many years. And we came into office with a regime that was enjoying a very healthy economy, a healthy military budget, strong proxies, and there was a deficit of trust that we inherited with our Sunni partners and with Israel. And I would say that our bilateral relations with all of these countries has been markedly improved and we have helped to shrink the Iran tumor. Uh, but we're only at this for the first, this has only been a matter of about a year and a half since leaving the deal. And there is, I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. In March, the New York Times ran a front page story documenting that Iran's proxies are weaker today. And then the Washington Post ran a follow on story in June documenting how Iran's proxies are weaker because of our sanctions. These are stories that were not written about prior to our pressure campaign. Senator Paul. You know, if we step back and ask the question, uh, do sanctions work? I think it's a bigger, broader question. We think, oh, it's all we can do, so we do sanctions, and we do more, and we more, and we're doing maximum pressure. I think they're having an economic effect. Nobody questions that, but are they working to bring Iran to the negotiating table? Let's say they aren't really working. So I think it's a, a fact of uh, loss of trust. I think that Iran feels that we are not trustworthy because of pulling out of the agreement that was worked on for so many years. I think it's also a matter of uh, having naive expectations that they're going to agree to 12 points, uh, most of which they didn't agree to in the previous agreement. So I think it's going to be very difficult to get started uh, because of the lack of trust and starting with some things that uh, were not agreed to previously and were specifically agreed to different limits, like no enrichment and the ballistic missile agreement. I think Iran sees their ballistic missiles as a deterrent as well. Great. And I don't think they're willing to give up a deterrent as they see Saudi Arabia spending $83 billion a year. We're like, oh, oh my goodness, Iran spends $14 billion. Well, that's one-fiftieth of what we spend, and it's about you know, uh, one-fourth or even less than one-fourth of what Saudi Arabia. If you add in Saudi Arabia's allies, you can see why Iran might say, oh, please, please, why they might not say, please, please take my ballistic missiles. They're not jumping up and down to do this, and they're really, even against the world superpower that can defeat them in a moment, willing to keep pricking and prodding because we're unrealistic in what we ask. And I think by pulling out showed that we're uh, not to be trusted from their perspective. So your problem there is you have an unwilling partner. In Syria, it's a little bit different. In Syria, um, we've been unwilling to uh, negotiate in the sense that uh, our goal has been, you know, remove Assad, replace Assad, and so no one wants to negotiate with Assad. I think the one thing that hasn't been picked up on yet, and I think it's going to be ironic because everybody seems to be concerned about the Kurds, is actually I think the Kurds' permanent solution is much more likely to come from Assad. He's there. He largely is going to stay, barring something un uh, untoward happening to him from his own people. But the war is largely over. Assad stays. So really, if we're going to be realistic about this and we want uh, to protect the Kurds, maybe the diplomatic um, arena has gotten simplified. Now, essentially, you have Turkey on one side and Syria on the other. And so really, I think our goal, everybody's going to talk about the sanctions, which I frankly don't think will work. But I think really somebody from the State Department that's involved with diplomacy ought to be saying, why don't we try to use our leverage to get Turkey now and Assad to talk, but we would have to acknowledge that someone's going to talk to Assad. And I think if we did, the goal would actually be to allow the Kurds to live in the northeastern quadrant of Syria, similar to the way the Kurds live in, in, in Iraq. Wasn't always easy there. It's been very messy and there have been a lot of problems. But currently, the Iraqi Kurds trade with the Turks. 
and have a fairly decent and robust rate over the last 10 years that's actually increased. So I think we shouldn't look at this as all sturm and drang and that, oh my goodness, the Kurds are being wiped out and all of this. Um, I think we should look at it as an opportunity, actually, to, as a breakthrough diplomatically, because we've simplified who needs to talk to whom at this point. And so I would just hope, and I guess my question is, is there anybody in the State Department actually looking to take an opportunity of, of the new dynamic in the last 24 hours that if Assad could reassure Erdogan that he's going to prevent incursions and that he's going to respect the border with Turkey and he's going to use a real government with the stability of a real government, is there a possibility Erdogan would simply withdraw under that guarantee? That's the kind of conversation that we've kind of prevented from happening because we, we don't want anybody, we wouldn't let the Kurds talk to Assad. So in some ways, I think there may be a breakthrough here. Your comments? Well, uh, I, I, my understanding that there is a member briefing that, that is in the works to try to be organized uh, that would focus on Syria. Um, uh, so I, that's probably a, a question that's best left to my colleague, my counterpart, Jim Jeffrey, who's uh, lead on Syria. Can I answer your but question do you see, about- Do you see a way the Kurds could permanently live in Syria without some kind of arrangement with the Syrian government? I'm going to stay in my lane and let Jim Jeffrey answer that question, but I do want to answer your Iran question that you asked at the top. Iran does have a history of coming to the table in the context of sanctions. And we saw that in the run-up to the Iran nuclear deal. We have also seen that um, in, in, uh, in various times when the United States But I think you have to be willing to offer something. Simply saying we're not going to offer any relief. If you were willing to offer relief of some of the export to Asia of their oil so you don't have a complete embargo on them, yeah, I think they'd talk in a heartbeat. But that would be offering something. And it would have been easier before they attacked Saudi Arabia. I agree it's easier to offer them something now. But six months ago, had you offered them relief of some of the sanctions in order to get the talk started, I think you might have had a chance. Now nobody wants to offer any relief because everybody's the heightened tensions between the countries. I think it's more difficult now to get started. Uh, sanctions relief was not granted in the run-up to what became the Iran nuclear deal. And I think once you establish that precedent- You had a unified Europe at that time, too. You had a little bit more pressure, but you also had the engagement of the Obama administration actually talking to them, and they were there was more trust then. There's less trust now because we basically pulled out of something that they were adhering to. Well, on that, um, we have made it clear that we're, ready, we're open to meeting. Iran has rejected the offer. And by the way, they rejected the offer while we were in the deal. Iran rejected our offers of meeting while we were in the Iran nuclear deal. It didn't happen after we left the deal. And so they have consistently rejected diplomacy. Um, I think they have a theory of the case that their resistance is greater than our pressure. We're very comfortable with the foreign policy that we have in place because we know that the regime has less revenue to spend on its military budget and on all of its, we're, we're forcing them to make very hard choices. Um, and as I said earlier, uh, if I've looked at the 40 year history of it. If talking nicely with the Iranians worked, we would have solved this a long time ago, but it doesn't. This is a regime that only respects and understands strength. They don't consider an embargo of their main export talking nicely to them. You have to, I'm not saying it's justified, but that you have to understand their perspective. They don't understand this to be nice talk when we have an embargo on right, their but, main export. But that oil goes to fund terrorism. So if, if you let Iran sell oil, they use it for terrorist operations. So we don't want Iran to sell its oil. That's why we put in place the embargo that we, I mean, the, the, the sanctions that we have uh, uh, on Iran's oil exports. 
and that's tens of billions of dollars in revenue that they would otherwise spend on Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, uh, Palestine, Islamic Jihad, Shia militias in Iraq and Syria. <clears throat> that's a good thing. Thank you, uh, Mr. Hook, and we're going to have to take a break. At this point, we've got some votes going on. We're gonna go vote on the number one, number two, and then we will be back in session and uh, appreciate your patience. Thank you, you're welcome okay. to use our anti-room. Thank you. Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee will be in recess. The committee will come to order. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Hook, thank you for your service. The President has deployed a growing number of additional U.S. armed forces to Saudi Arabia in recent weeks as part of a potential conflict with Iran. Do you believe that the Congress is required by the Constitution to authorize U.S. participation in any war with Iran? Um, I know that my colleague, uh, Merrick String, who's the department's uh, acting legal advisor, testified before this committee on July 24th to answer questions related to legal authorities surrounding Iran. I have nothing new to add beyond what he said, and so I would defer to his answers, but I, as I said earlier in my statement, we're not looking for conflict with Iran, and we have said repeatedly that we will not exercise military force unless we are attacked. And the troop, um, the troop uh, uh, enhanced posture with Saudi is purely defensive, and it's to help Saudi do a better job of defending itself. So, uh, and obviously, when when, you know, I'm, when I'm not so sure that Iran sees it that way. When we're taking sides like we have, how many times have you met with President Trump's personal attorney Rudy, Rudy Giuliani about any subject involving foreign policy, and what topics did you discuss? Back in, uh, when I was the director of the Office of Legal Policy, um, I'm, I'm friends with, uh, I, I know Judge Michael Mukasey, and he asked for a meeting. Um, when, when I was uh, in legal policy, and he brought Rudy Giuliani to the meeting with him. Um, and uh, the meetings were regarding uh, a consular issue. Uh, there was no action taken regarding uh, the meeting topic. And that's the only meeting you had with him on? He, uh, General Mukasey came and met with me twice, and uh, uh, Mr. Giuliani was there at both meetings. And what was the second meeting about? Same one. And, and uh, so are you confirming the meeting about the Zareb case? It was... Um, uh, it is it is a consular issue, and we don't discuss consular issues. What I, what I can say well, it was. Well, let a, me ask it this way then. Yeah. So you are confirming the Washington Post reporting that you met with Mr. Giuliani in 2017, when he was representing Reza Zarab, a Turkish national who has been convicted of helping powerful Turkish figures make huge amounts of money evading Iranian sanctions. Did you believe that it was appropriate for Mr. Giuliani to press for presidential intervention in an ongoing criminal trial to free an Iranian sanction evader to avoid testimony that would implicate, implicate powerful figures in Turkey? What actions did you take after that meeting in response? Yeah. So it was a meeting at the request of uh, Judge Mukasey, and there was no action taken uh, after either meeting. And so can you confirm that you only met with Mr. Giuliani twice? Correct. 
But again, it was a meeting at the request of Judge Mukasey. And I know Judge Mukasey. He was Attorney General uh, uh, of DOJ in the Bush administration. I served at the Justice Department. I've known him for a number of years. And he requested the meeting. And so it was, that is the nature of the meeting. I want to make that clear. Well, you said two meetings. Yeah, I'm mean, saying yeah, Judge Mukasey on, came by twice. Yeah, in the same, with Giuliani, within the same, about the same subject as reported Correct. by the Washington Post. Well, I, I don't have the Post article. I, I don't know what well, the Post is Well, I stated the basis of it, oh. and, you, and you confirmed it. Well, no, what I said was it was involving a, a consular issue. We don't discuss consular issues. But you but confirmed it, the meeting. I, I have confirmed that I met at the request of Judge Mukasey twice to discuss, he requested the meeting to discuss the consular issue. And, and the cons consular issue concerned Reza Zarab, a Turkish national. I don't have any comment beyond what I said about the nature of the meeting that so, Judge Mukasey so requested. So do you not confirm at all what the Washington Post reported about your meeting I, I have not this read, gentleman? I haven't read the Post article, okay, so I can't confirm you. something I haven't read. The Inspector General and internal State Department emails show that you have been working to retaliate against State Department employees whom you do not believe are sufficiently loyal to President Trump. There are reports that you wrote yourself an email with a list of individuals whom you consider insufficiently loyal or whom you listed as troublemakers or turncoats. Furthermore, furthermore, you have reportedly received communications from private citizens, such as Newt Gingrich and others in the Republican Party, to justify firing or reassigning career officials. We have a civil service system to protect this sort of politicization of our government, especially our diplomats. Who was urging you to take action against career State Department officials, and what actions did you take in response? Uh, I th uh, so first of all, um, I can't comment on uh, an IG investigation. Look forward to that report coming out. I think what you're um, uh, quoting from uh, is from something that was leaked. So I don't have any comment on something that was leaked. Um, so we will wait for uh, the report to come out. It's not proper for me to comment on it. But I will say that as Director of Policy Planning and in my current role, as uh, director of the Iran Action Group, uh, I have worked very closely <clears throat> and very well with all members of the career, civil service, the foreign service, political appointees, all manner of schedule appointments uh, in the federal government, and uh, very proud of the work that we have done together. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Mr. Hooker. I, let me start by saying I'm a supporter of the administration's policy towards Iran. I, um, I also am, uh, I believe you're very knowledgeable about the topic, and I think you're doing a very good job. And, 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 but I think you have a very tough job. Um, and, um, and so obviously I'm not expecting you to, to be able to do that job and opine on everything I'm about to say, but I, I, I do need to challenge the notion that our decision that led to the Turkish incursion and attack <coughs> in northern Syria do not hurt our Iranian strategy. Um, I want to start by saying that clearly Iran is carrying out a counter-pressure campaign uh, that allows them to directly or under cover of surrogates conduct attacks in the region with, some, with enough deniability to avoid international condemnation. It's a capacity, by the way, that they have built partially with the funds generated by the disastrous Iran deal. Um, and I believe that, and I think the evidence is clear, that the threshold they think they can get away with on some of these attacks is greatly influenced by their perception 
that the administration is looking to get out of the Middle East, not re-engaged in some conflict. And so I, I do not believe, although I understand the difficulty of the job you have, I, I do not believe it's credible to argue that the decision with regards to Turkey doesn't fortify that Iranian perception. I also think it's difficult to ignore the implications that that decision has on our partners in the region and their views on our security assurances, whether it's Israel or Jordan or the UAE or Saudi Arabia, frankly, even beyond the Middle East, it's, it's, it's not credible to argue that other countries don't view that decision and see themselves there one day, potentially in, in, a, in a moment of, of conflict and crisis. So, I don't expect you can opine on it. Those are my views. I feel strongly about it, and, and, I, and I suspect uh, many others do as well. If anything I said that you disagree with, I'd welcome a comment. If not, I do have a question. Happy to take your question. Um, the Security Council resolution that implemented the nuclear deal and revised the embargo on sales of conventional weapons to Iran um, set to expire no later than October 2020 on things like large caliber artillery systems and combat aircraft and the like and it banned foreign assistance to Iran's ballistic missile program and manufacturing and by 20, that sunset in 23. In September of 2019, an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal by Steve Rademacher, a lawyer who served under, as President Bush's Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, and he made the argument that the U.S. should trigger the 2231 and the mechanisms there for snapping back U.N. sanctions against Iran and preserving the arms embargo and the missile ban that under those provisions, by the way, the snapback would then go into effect unless the UN Security Council adopts a resolution to the contrary, which would be, of course, subject to American to US veto. It, it, one thing that's important to note in his op-ed is he wrote, this is a quote, some might argue that because the US withdrew from the JCPOA, it's no longer a participant and therefore cannot trigger this procedure. In fact, resolution 2231 defines JCPOA participant to include the US without any qualifications. My question is, do you agree with his assessment that the U.S. could trigger the snapback mechanism regardless of whether or not the U.S. is, an obser is observing the non-legally binding deal? Um, it, it is ultimately a question for L. <clears throat> I think we need to have the, the lawyers from the NSC and the state uh, legal department and, and other uh, agencies with equ equities take a look at this question. The broad procedure to force snapback is a member of the deal uh, would go to the UN Security Council, the President of the Council would table a resolution that was introduced by the member, and then the member that, that um, introduced it would then veto his own resolution, and then that would then end the Iran nuclear deal. I think the question you raised is who has standing uh, to initiate that sequence of events that leads to the end of the Iran nuclear deal and the full snapback of all the UN sanctions. And that is a, uh, since you've asked, and I've talked to other um, uh, staff on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I know this is a question, a live question that you would like to have answered, and I will take it back and work with the interagency to come up with an answer. One last point, one, one last point is uh, in July of this year, I, I raised the problem of Chinese individuals and entities that were helping the Iranian regime export oil. Um, in violation of the secondary sanctions. So I was very pleased to see later that month uh, that the Secretary of State announced the imposition of sanctions against the Chinese firm and its CEO for knowingly purchasing or acquiring oil from Iran contrary to U.S. sanctions. Without getting ahead of ourselves and uh, alerting people to the factor in the crosshairs, are there other such actors still out there that are available for us to go 
to go after? Are there more? Is there more to do in this space in regards to entities, whether it's Chinese or otherwise? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for raising uh, our what we've done to enforce our sanctions, uh, especially our oil sanctions, because that is the chief source of of Iran's um, export revenue. And we have now we've sanctioned uh, uh, Chinese company Zhuhai Zhenrong back in July, and then. Uh, in mid-September, we sanctioned uh, six Chinese entities that were importing Iranian crude oil. They, they did, they, they, all the oil waivers, there are none. Um, those ended after the six-month period after we left the deal. So we have said that we will sanction any sanctionable activity. We also sanctioned five uh, executives, Chinese executives in these firms. Um, we have demarched China a number of times on this subject. I've met with the Chinese to talk about this. China is Iran's, historically, its largest uh, importer. And so it's important that its largest importer not import crude oil. The argument that I've made to the Chinese is that, you know, you, you, like many nations, would like to see greater peace and stability in the Middle East. And for as long as Iran is able to sell its oil, they are going to use that oil to fund their proxy operations around the Middle East. <clears throat> and that has, that undermines security and it undermines sovereignty and stability. So that's the, the message that we've been taking to them. We hope that Iran, um, sorry, that, that China decides that it will no longer import. Um, Iranian crude oil is not an exotic grade. We have a well-supplied oil market. Uh, there has been no interruption of China's energy needs during this period. And so, uh, th there's no need for them to be importing Iranian crude oil. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Hook, the reason that uh, Senator Udall is asking you questions about Rudy Giuliani's requests on behalf of Reza Zarab, uh, I think, is twofold. One, uh, we are very concerned that there is a shadow foreign policy operation uh, that exists uh, being conducted by the president's um, personal lawyer, a representative of his, of his political interests. Uh, we know that because we have transcripts of phone calls in which the president tells foreign leaders not to call your boss, Secretary Pompeo, if, he, if they want to deal with the United States, but to call Rudy Giuliani. But we're also concerned about this particular case because it seems as if it is evidence that the president's personal lawyer, his shadow Secretary of State, is working to undermine American sanctions against Iran, the very sanctions that you testify to us uh, that are crippling their economy. Um, and so let me, ask, let me ask Senator Udall's question a different way. Um, have you spoken to Rudy Giuliani about U.S. sanctions policy towards his client, Reza Zarab? This meeting was a couple of years ago. Um, I was in listening mode. Uh, uh, as I said, Judge McCasey asked for the meeting and um, uh, listened to what they had to say, and there was no action taken. But you, you did have a meeting with Rudy Giuliani specific to his representation of a client who is seeking to get out of U.S. sanctions. Now, I had a meeting with Judge McCasey, uh, who was the lead, and Judge McCasey raised a consular issue with me, uh, and there was no action taken. There is a report from three people familiar with a meeting between President Trump and Secretary Tillerson, who you were working for at the time as perhaps his closest advisor, uh, in which President Trump asked for Secretary Tillerson's help to work to drop the case against Zarab. Uh, are you uh, familiar 
uh, with this meeting or the request that was made. I was not familiar with the meeting. Okay. Um, Mr. Chairman, um, I think it's important to uh, set the broader record straight here with respect to some of the things that Mr. Hook has said about um, our policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran um, and its connection to the recent developments in Syria. Um, I, I, I appreciate that you do have a tough job to do, and I don't imagine that you would have given counsel to the president to abandon our Kurdish partners in Syria. Um, but it is simply not credible to say that we didn't have a counter-Iran element to our Syria strategy. Um, in fact, multiple individuals testified to that before this committee and would still testify to that before the committee. Um, it is not credible to say that abandoning the Kurds doesn't change the efficacy of our Iran strategy. Iran absolutely benefits unequivocally uh, from a new alignment inside Syria in which the Kurds are forced to align themselves with Bashar al-Assad. Um, and it is also not credible, it just doesn't pass the straight face test to try to convince us that Europe is helping us with a maximum pressure campaign on Iran. Uh, and to the extent that I have a question uh, on uh, these topics, I'll give you one to try to clarify the record. Um, I, I know you have this list of actions that Europe has taken, um, but let's be honest, Europe is attempting to work around our sanctions. Europe is trying to create financial vehicles so that their businesses can continue to trade with Iran. They're talking about a new line of credit to prop up the Iranian economy. They still have diplomatic relations. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't pass um, the laugh test to suggest that the Europeans are working with us. Um, and so I just want to put this question back to you again. Um, I mean, are you really trying to convince us that the Europeans are assisting in our maximum pressure campaign when we know that they are um, actively engaged in trying to help their businesses work around U.S. sanctions? So you said that Europe is working around our sanctions, and I think maybe just to be a little more precise, Europe is European companies is what we're talking about. European companies have... Uh, have made a clear choice to choose the United States market over the Iranian market. The EU does more trade with Kazakhstan than it does with Iran. It's not even in the top 30 of trading partners. And so um, we have seen nothing but full compliance by European companies on our sanctions regime. European governments are frustrated that Iran has lost some of the benefits under the Iran nuclear deal with our departure. But that is a secondary consequence. As it pertains to European companies, there's no daylight. There's more daylight between European companies and European governments than there is between the U.S. Right, but I think what you were trying to, you were sending us a list of actions that European yeah. countries had taken. And yes, I, I, just, I think it just strains credibility to suggest that you have had success in convincing other nations, especially those in Europe, to rejoin the pressure campaign. The pressure campaign is unilateral. It is not as effective as it could be if you well, were successful. <clears throat> so our unilateral sanctions have been much more effective than the multilateral sanctions that were in place prior to the deal. Indisputable on that. I, I, the second thing, is on the, on, so when you say it is true, and maybe, maybe this is just a matter of sort of uh, making distinctions, there is our pressure campaign and then there is Europe working to confront and address Iranian uh, threats to peace and security. 
And sometimes those overlap and sometimes they separate. But when I look at this list of European actions, it is dozens of actions that, I mean, everything from, as I said, these statements, Austria, Austria, Belgium, France, and Germany exposed an Iranian plot to bomb an oppositionist rally in Paris, and they arrested several Iranian operatives. The Netherlands expelled two Iranian diplomats in connection with an assassination. Uh, the French foreign minister condemned Iran's attacks on U.S. diplomatic missions in Iraq. Serbia revoked visa-free travel for Iranian citizens. Belgium extradited. I mean, this is a, I'm, I, do, I would welcome you reading this. Europe has done a lot in the time that we have left the deal to try to raise the cost of Iranian aggression. They have not joined our maximum pressure campaign, but they have adopted our position that we need a new deal. And Boris Johnson said that the Iran nuclear deal is a bad deal with many, many deals. I, I, I would just say, listen, the, the, proof, the proof is in the pudding. Iran is not at the negotiating table. You have a year left on your term. Their malevolent activity in the region is worse than ever before. If you had evidence that all of these actions were bringing them to the table, um, we might be in a different conversation, but there is absolutely no evidence that this has actually gotten us to a point where you can effectuate a negotiated settlement, and you only have 12 months left on the term. We are just not going to get the agreement that you have sought with the time that you have left and without European partners. I know I'm way over my time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. No, I, I, Senator Murphy, I, I, I'm not uh, complaining about the time because I think this is an important discussion to have. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sitting here listening and I'm, I'm hoping we're not talking past each other. I mean, uh, uh, as far as starting with the Europeans, I mean, we all meet with the Europeans. We know what their view is on this. Of course. They'd, 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 they're despondent over the fact that we walked away from the JCPOA. Right. But on a transactional basis, I think, as uh, Mr. Hook has pointed out, they've certainly done some things uh, to help us move the ball forward. They've also done some things to try to get around us uh, by establishing other credit and, and what have you. Um, but uh, again, I, I think th the debate should be, and, I, and apparently we have at least some disagreement on that, that uh, that the sanctions that uh, that have been put in place indeed are causing great difficulty within Iran. And uh, th has that gotten to the table yet? No. And has it, have they given any indications they're coming to the table? No. No. But, but does that mean, okay, well, so where do you suggest we go? Do we then just say, oh, okay, well, we'll go back to the JCPOA, or we beg them to come to the table? So, I mean, I don't, I, I don't understand that. I, I, and believe me, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to rankle anybody here. I think we all need to pull the wagon together as far as Iran is concerned. So I, I just, I hope we're not talking past each other on this. Yeah, again, my, my point is that, you know, to the extent there is evidence you're crippling the economy, that is supposed to be leverage in order to get them to the table Correct. to negotiate a deal that was better than the JCPOA. I think many of us would argue that you were never going to get them to agree to something that was better than the JCPOA, but you can't even get them to the table in part because they see Europe as a lifeline. Um, they see their ability to work around our sanctions through lines of credit and innovative financial vehicles from Europe. And I just, I just don't think, I, I just don't think we should let the administration get away with telling us that Europe is our partner in trying to get Iran to the negotiating table. They are not. They are trying to work around the sanctions that the Trump administration has enacted. And that is the, one of the primary reasons why this strategy it has not worked for three years and is not going to work as a vehicle to try to get the Iranians back to the table before the end of Trump's term. Well, I, I think that's a fair uh, uh, opinion of yours. I, I would disagree with it, but the, the, the point about sitting it out until Trump's term is over may be good, 
but boy, they got a tough year ahead of them. If, uh, they've got uh, uh, 14 months ahead of them of some pretty, uh, pretty dark times if, if you accept what's happening internally within Iran, particularly with the depreciation of their currency and that sort of thing. But, I, but look, I'm, I, 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 that's a fair opinion that you have. I, I think that we, we just have a, a fair disagreement on that opinion. And with that, unfortunately, we've got to go vote a couple of times. So we'll do that and we'll come back because we're anxious to hear from Senator Markey who is, and Senator Cruz, who are uh, our last uh, questioners. So if we could have a short break where we go vote, we'll all come back. Fair enough? Will be at ease. Uh, committee will be at ease. Subject call the chair. Committee will come to order. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And Mr. Chair, thank you for interrupting me as I was interrupting a witness earlier. I, I should not have interrupted, and I appreciated no, you making me wait my turn. Um, Mr. Hook, the reason I interrupted is I, I just don't I don't like being lied to. And you said something that you repeated twice that has been said to this committee before that I just think is completely wrong, and that is that the JCPOA, the Iran deal, one of the reasons it was bad is because it expires. And I think you know that that's false. There are provisions in the agreement that expire. That's correct. So the agreement has a set of provisions dealing with centrifuges and inspections, and some of the provisions, you're correct, expire at year eight or year 15 or year 20 or year 25 or year 30. But to say to me, to our committee, to the American public that the deal is bad because it expires is just wrong. First paragraph of the deal, preface. I said first sentence, first paragraph, I was wrong. It's not the first sentence. First paragraph of the deal, Iran reaffirms that under no circumstances will Iran ever seek, develop, or acquire any nuclear weapons. That's permanent, ever, under no circumstances, any. That is a permanent provision that they have signed to that never expires unless somebody like the United States decides to blow up the deal. Second page of the deal, preamble and general provisions. I guess they felt that was important enough that they wanted to repeat it twice. Iran reaffirms that under no circumstances will Iran ever seek, develop, or acquire any nuclear weapons. That's not the only permanent part of the deal. While there are some provisions that expire, and anybody can feel free to like or not like the sunset on those provisions, there's also a provision that I believe at year 30, excess extra investigation, um, examination uh, of their nuclear arsenal provisions expire, but at year 30, Iran agrees to permanently abide by the additional protocol set up by the IAEA for inspections in the aftermath of North Korea being caught cheating. I wouldn't dwell on it except other administration witnesses have come here and looked us in the eye and said the same thing. I get it that you guys want to say the deal was bad, but by lying about it and suggesting that the deal was bad because it expires, you tremendously weaken your credibility. I believe that the administration backing out of the JCPA was incredibly foolish. Who cares what I think? I'm a Democrat. I don't think the administration cares one whit what I think. How about Secretary Mattis? How about Secretary Tillerson? How about head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joe Dunford? I'm on the Armed Services Committee. And they appeared when the president was trying to decide what to do about the deal and said staying in the deal was in United States' interest. All right, well, forget about them. Maybe they don't know anything. 
Our European allies begged us to stay in the deal. Okay, who cares about allies? Maybe we don't. The International Atomic Energy Agency said Iran was complying with the deal. President Trump felt otherwise, just like President Bush trashed the IAEA when it said Iraqi, Iraq didn't have a, it had a program of weapons of mass destruction. So this is a deal that had some provisions that did in fact expire, provisions that expired, but it was a permanent deal where Iran suggested they would never seek, purchase, acquire, develop nuclear weapons. That promise was enforceable by sanctions. That promise could potentially have given legal justification for military action against Iran if they had violated the provision. The additional protocol that was permanent gives the United States not only intel, but intel plus inspection data that if we ever needed to take military action, we could target it in a more sophisticated way. And when I see the administration coming and telling the American public we don't like the deal because it expires, it, it just infuriates me. We should have done what Senator Cardin said. The administration should have stayed in the JCPOA and then done exactly what you were trying to do. Sanction Iran for all the other bad activities that you've testified to here today. And many of us on both sides of the aisle had supported sanctions against Iran for missiles, human rights violations, their aggression in the region. We should have kept the permanent promise and the additional protocol being permanent in our pocket and, in, and, and worked with our European allies to get sanctions against Iran for those activities, which you could have done by your own testimony today, except you were asking for additional negotiations of the, IA, of the uh, JCPOA itself. The withdrawal has made the region less safe, and the withdrawal has made it much more difficult for you to do what you want to do, which is to get another deal. Because if the deal is being complied with and we backed out of it, why would a country do another deal with us? They would think we would back out of it. Backing out of the deal has made it much harder to get a deal with North Korea. I applaud the President's efforts in trying. When North Korea sees the U.S. backing out of the deal that the IAEA said Iran was complying with, it makes it much more difficult, much more difficult for them to get on board. So I just wanted to put on the record, that's why I was agitated. You can be against the deal. You can be against the expiration of provisions of the deal. But to tell the American public the deal was bad because it expires, it's just a lie. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Would that? you like to respond, please? Yeah, I'd like to respond to that. Uh, I'm sure that Senator Kane will, will give you the rest of his time, such as it is. Uh, it is the case that the deal will expire. And I don't think it is a material distinction to say that after all of the substance of the deal expires, that the deal doesn't expire because Iran makes a commitment to never get a nuclear weapon. I think that's a misreading, and it's a misleading account of the Iran nuclear deal. In 2031... Do you think I misquoted what I just read? No, are, you, are you accusing you me of misquoting I'm happy to it? go through everything that you raised. No, but are you saying that I... You think it's a misreading. Did I incorrectly state those provisions in the preface and preamble to the deal? As I understood what you said was that <clears throat> because Iran reaffirms that under no circumstances will Iran ever develop or acquire any nuclear weapons, that that means that this deal never expires. The provisions of the deal expire. That's a provision of the deal. It's not a provision. It is, it is in the preamble. It's, it's, and it's it is preambular. In the preface. It's a, but it's, it's not. It's a provision. But it's a preambular. It's not an operative paragraph. It's a preambular paragraph. It's horatory. So in 2031, 
all restrictions lift on the Iran nuclear deal. Except that provision and the uh, agreement to uh, follow the additional protocol if, in perpetuity. If Iran has no intent to acquire a nuclear weapon, what were they doing with that atomic archive in the heart of Tehran that Israel had to liberate? Well, I'm, I'm, look, if you want to talk about what Iran is doing wrong, that's fine. I'm just saying you just no, I'm asking misrep what, what, you why, misrepresented why do they have the deal why, to the no, American I didn't public. I did not misrepresent it. I stated very clearly that the Iran deal will expire. It is, it is, it's we, we misleading will, you know, Mr. Chair, let's, <clears throat> the, the wording stands as it is, and I'm perfectly comfortable to let the people look at the first paragraph of the deal and the preamble and compare it against this witness's statement. I'm perfectly comfortable just that, That's That's fair, Senator Kane, and, and the language of the agreement cannot be argued with. It is black and white. The opinion as to whether or not that is an expi expiring provision, I think, is subject to debate. Some of us feel one way, some of us feel another. That's a, that's a fair statement. I, I hope that that, and, and I understand how it agitates uh, uh, anybody if you come in and try to tell somebody facts are different than what they are. But I, I think there's a lot more important issues here over uh, whether or not that provision was uh, expired. I, I think we can go forward with what we have to do about the situation that we have in front of us without agreeing on whether a provision that isn't in, or uh, an agreement that is no longer in effect had a provision that said this or that. And, and again, I, 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 I say, get the same frustration you do when people try to tell me that something that I, I believe differently. Um, but in any event, I, I think it'd be productive if we, we did go forward with other parts. And, and I, th there's nobody gonna argue with you that the language of the agreement isn't exactly what it is. So thank you, uh, Mr. Let, let's go to, I had next up Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and let me start by saying that I know my friend from Virginia is speaking in, in good faith when he expresses his support for this deal. But I think the Obama-Iran nuclear deal was flawed in virtually every respect. In my judgment, the threat of a nuclear Iran is the single greatest national security threat facing the United States. And the Obama-Iran nuclear deal was the most catastrophic international agreement since Neville Chamberlain led the United Kingdom. It was flawed on multiple fronts. On one front, it gave $150 billion to the Ayatollah Khamenei, to the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. It did so while the Ayatollah was chanting death to America and death to Israel. Literally, as we negotiated the deal, the Ayatollah would lead mobs in chanting death to America. And history teaches us when someone tells you they want to kill you, we should believe them. The deal on its face would have led inexorably to a nuclear Iran. It was designed to be utterly unenforceable. On the face of the deal, numerous sites were deemed exempt from inspections. Military sites were deemed exempt from inspections, which of course means that's naturally where the Iranian regime would engage in additional nuclear research. It also required 21 days advance notice to the regime before any inspection, a provision certain to encourage cheating. And indeed, in some circumstances, the agreement provided that Iran would inspect itself a provision so laughably weak, the only consequence of the Iran deal that would have occurred is that 
Iran would acquire nuclear weapons. We now know, thanks to Israel's heroic uh, work seizing Iranian records, that Iran has cheated from day one and continues to cheat. And the only question is, is Iran better off with $150 billion or without $150 billion? And I believe pulling out of the disastrous Obama-Iran nuclear deal is the single most important national security decision the Trump administration has made. And the maximum pressure campaign is exactly the right approach. Now listen, Iran remains profoundly dangerous, but I'd much rather a weakened Iran with billions of dollars less resources to use to, to pay terrorists to kill Americans and to fund nuclear research than an Iran flush with cash racing to catch up with North Korea and use nuclear weapons and ICBMs to threaten the lives of millions of Americans. Now, Mr. Hook, you talked about major provisions of the Iran deal expiring, major provisions such as the arms embargo and the ballistic missile test ban expiring, uh, and I agree that that is highly troubling. Uh, there is an obvious re remedy to that, which is under the terms of Resolution 2231, you have the snapback sanctions. And we now have a situation where Iran's conduct has gotten even worse. Even our European allies acknowledge that Iran committed a serious act of war in bombing Saudi Arabia and taking out about half of their oil production cap capability. That act of war merits a real response. Um, <clears throat> two questions. Does state believe the United States is able to trigger the snapback mechanism? And number two, should we trigger the snapback mechanism? Uh, and Senator, thank you for your question. I, I, I read your letter from July 2nd, I believe to Secretary Pompeo, uh, that, 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 that raises this question. And it's something which Senator Rubio and I discussed earlier about um, whether we can and whether we should um, uh, reimpose, use, use the uh, 2231 to trigger the snapback of the sanctions. I've raised this um, with our legal advisor's office. I know it's, it's been in discussion with the NSC uh, legal advisor. It's a, it's, it's a question of, it's a procedural question and in, in, in interpretation of 2231 that turns around what the definition of, uh, of, of some of the various terms are like participant and other things. Um, I, I think yours is a very plausible reading um, uh, what we have done since leaving the deal is allow other countries uh, to decide whether to stay in the deal. Um, obviously, I think even as the French foreign minister said recently after the attacks on Abcake on September 14th, um, it's, it's a uh, seminal event, it's a game changer. I can't remember exactly how he described it, but um, it's something that we should take uh, another look at and appreciate you raising it to our attention. Well, I would certainly encourage you, on my reading, I believe that we have full authority to invoke the snapback sanctions, and particularly given this recent attack against Saudi Arabia, I think we should invoke the snapback sanctions. I think that is a natural response. Uh, second question, uh, you and I have had multiple conversations about the civilian nuclear waivers. As you know, 
Another round of waivers is coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have waivers right now allowing them to continue construction at the underground Fordo nuclear bunker, a bunker built into the side of a mountain to, to, to build nuclear weapons. We also have a waiver allowing Iran to continue working on the Iraq plutonium producing reactor, which Secretary Pompeo has rightly says needs to be shut down anyway. Isn't it time to end these waivers and shut down the Fordo nuclear bunker and the Iraq plutonium producing facility? You are correct that the, uh, the current, uh, there are five restrictions that are currently in place. Uh, the, Secretary Pompeo extended those restrictions on June 30th. You're correct. Those are going to expire very soon on October 29th. Um, what we have done <clears throat> is we, we have, over the course of a couple of years now, tightened the restrictions on Iran's nuclear program. We did sanction the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran in November of 2018. In March of this year, we imposed new sanctions on nuclear scientists who were linked to Iran's WMD proliferation-sensitive activities. Um, Secretary Pompeo on July 30th then extended uh, th th those five restrictions around Iraq, Fordo, Bushir, the Tehran Research Reactor. And so um, he'll have a decision ma to make coming up. Um, uh, you have been um, a thought leader on this subject, and, uh, and we will make sure that that, that, that that is all before the Secretary, before he makes his decision. Well, I would strongly urge that you not extend the waivers, particularly given Iran's spectacularly bad conduct. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Mr. Hook, in a uh, July 23rd interview, Secretary Pompeo said that Iran, before the Trump administration uh, came into office, violated the nuclear deal, quote, and continued to work on their nuclear program. Uh, Mr. Hook, in your opinion, was Iran working on its nuclear weapons program during our period of compliance with the JCPOA? It is the case that Iran was hiding under armed guard uh, in a warehouse in the heart of Tehran half a ton of materials on were how they, to build were, the, were they weapon. out of compliance with the JCPOA, in your opinion? Uh, I think if Iran is, is housing an atomic archive and keeping it from the International Atomic Energy Association, that they are not in compliance. So you disagree with uh, Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson, and General, um, uh, the generals and the Joint Chiefs of Staff that they were not out of compliance with the um, J J JCPOA? Well, it depends on, in this case, um, the, the under, I think, a statute passed by Congress, the president had to certify on a fairly regular basis whether Iran was or wasn't in compliance with the deal. The discovery of the Atomic Archive happened just a couple of months before the president left the deal, and I think that that was a factor. So, so, so you disagree with Secretary Tillerson and Secretary um, Mattis? Well, they, no, it, that they were not. That they you, you 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 believe they were out of compliance? Is that what you're saying? No, what I'm saying. Um, I'd have to look at the dates that both uh, Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis said that. And so that is relevant to this because the Atomic Archive was discovered only a, a month that. or two the, before. The, do you agree the that the IAEA inspectors have not found uh, that uh, Iran is out of compliance and definitely was not out of compliance before uh, Donald Trump took well, uh, office? 
I think in the reports that, that, that the IAEA, the IAEA doesn't certify that Iran is in compliance. Um, that's something which the member states do. But I think that the Iran nuclear deal set such a low bar for compliance. Well, that's separate from whether or not they're in compliance. Are right, but I don't think we should be not, surprised. I, I, is, is, is Secretary Pompeo correct that they were not in compliance? I can, I'd have to see exactly what he said and when he said it. Okay, well, let me just say this. The Secretary Pompeo's suggestions have consequences because the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia stated in March of 2018 uh, that without a doubt, if Iran developed a nuclear bomb, we will follow suit. And again, that gets into the question of the one, two, three agreement with right. Saudi Arabia in terms of uh, the United States agreeing that Saudi Arabia would not have to, in fact, comply with a gold standard uh, for securing uranium and plutonium on Saudi territory. Mm -hmm. uh, so that just would then call into question whether or not they, that is the Saudis, uh, would in fact act in a way that would, de would, would be reacting to an Iranian active nuclear weapons program. Could I speak so to that from question, my, Senator? From, so from my perspective, um, uh, the, um, the, the, the goal has to be that the Trump administration is not saying that there is an active uh, program that has been certified by the IAEA if that's not the case because it triggers a reaction in Saudi Arabia that is very, very dangerous. I want to reach one other question, and, and that is the issue of uh, how, w not, how, not whether or not we might uh, differ on the Iranian nuclear deal, uh, but we know that Turkey has undermined Iran sanctions across administrations. Do you agree with that? I can only speak to the Iran file. Turkey has been in compliance with Iran sanctions. You think they are in, are in compliance, well, Turkey? Um, in terms of the key factor on oil, uh, Turkey is not importing Iranian okay, crude so you oil. Don't think you, you don't think Turkey has been out of compliance, which is important for me to understand. But the problem is right now is that Turkey is endangering U.S. troops after another rash decision by President Trump. But that's happening uh, near the Syrian border where we reportedly store 50 U.S. nuclear weapons at the Insulik air base inside of Turkey. So the question then is, um, uh, will we, as a country, remove those nuclear weapons from Turkey? Uh, they are right now endangering U.S. assets inside of Syria. Um, they're at the border. We have nuclear weapons, reportedly 50 nuclear weapons, on the Insulik uh, mm -hmm. uh, air base. Uh, and uh, and Erdogan has become a less and less reliable partner. So the president just moments ago said he is confident that the weapons are secure because they are at a, quote, large, powerful air base. But that large, powerful air base is inside of Turkey with Erdogan right now undermining American security in a way that's almost impossible to fully understand the magnitude Right now, the ripple effect, the law of unintended consequences is just happening and happening and happening. And Turkey, Turkey has actually previously restricted our access to that base during a crisis. So from my perspective, instead of irresponsibly pulling our troops back from the Turkish border, President Trump should be pulling our nuclear weapons out of Turkey instead. 
That's the right kind of signal to send. That's a, an accurate reflection of the reliability of the Erdogan administration uh, in terms of American security. So this whole dynamic in the Trump administration has tremendous ripple effects. Pulling out of the Iranian deal, playing footsie with the Saudis in terms of a one-two-three agreement that is less than the gold standard with uranium and plutonium, having the Saudi prince say they are going to pursue nuclear weapons if they believe the Iranians are, and having our administration saying they are, so that creates a ripple effect. And then uh, turning a blind eye to um, the Turkish uh, aggressive military action uh, along our border that endangers our interests and potentially if things really go awry, could potentially endanger the security of the nuclear weapons inside of Turkey that are made in the USA. So all of this is something that basically points to the figure, uh, to, the, to the result from my perspective, is that the nuclear weapons of the United States in Turkey is a relic of the Cold War. They're not necessary. They should not be there. And it's highly unclear that the Turks would ever allow us to be using those weapons in a retaliatory strike against Russia, yeah. with whom, at least ostensibly right now, they are partnering yeah. in this effort in Syria. It is absolutely a crazy policy. We've got to get those nukes out of, uh, out of Turkey and do so immediately. Thank you, you Mr. Did Chairman. you want to comment? Uh, yeah, can I just say, uh, on, on the first part of the question about Saudi, um, prior to the Iran nuclear deal, and Senator Markey and I have had many conversations about um, nonproliferation, uh, advocate for nonproliferation. Prior to the Iran nuclear deal, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 1737, and under Chapter 7, Article 39, it prohibited Iran from enriching. And the Iran nuclear deal, that, by the way, that is the right standard. There should be no enrichment for the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. The, and I know that you like the 123 agreement that, that was negotiated in the Bush administration with the UAE. That agreement allows UAE to have a peaceful nuclear program, but they can't enrich. Unfortunately, the Iran nuclear deal lifted the prohibition in 1737 and then conceded the point that Iran can enrich. Once you do that, you're not going to be able to sign up anybody for a one-two-three agreement because you've already breached that standard of no enrichment. And when and we were able to get a one-two-three agreement because we had a standard of no enrichment. So I think the Iran nuclear deal has caused all of these countries around the Middle East to look at Iran enriching and ask themselves, why can't I enrich? Yeah. It's much better to restore. Right. And so if you look at Secretary Pompeo's list of 12, at the very top is to restore the standard of no enrichment. And that is the best thing that we can be doing. That standard was voted unanimously by China, Russia, the P3, all uh, 10 elected members of the council repeatedly. It was the negotiated Mr. Position. Chairman, I have been patiently waiting. And you, could, you, could you please put this in writing? So, uh, and, and I'll just say, Mr. Chairman, a bad deal with Iran should not be the justification for a bad deal with the Saudi Arabians. We're trying to walk back a bad deal historically. We should not create on, as, that as a precedent that allows for a bad deal with Iran. Let's, Thank turn, you, Mr. let's turn to Senator. Let's turn to Senator Graham so he can. Get All right, his. Mr. Hook, uh, is Assad a friend of the United States? No. Do you consider him a war criminal? Yes. Okay. Do you think is is he aligned with Iran? 
Iran has been supporting Assad without over Iran the last eight years. helping Assad, he would not be around because Hezbollah came to his aid when nobody else would. You agree with that? Yes, I Iran was an early good, supporter of Assad. Yeah, I, well, Russia and Iran keep Assad functioning. Uh, yeah, you're a good man. You're a good choice for this. So my questions are really not about you and your policies. It's about this president's policies. I could not agree with more with Senator Markey. This is the most screwed up decision I've seen since I've been in Congress. When the president said today, Syria, the invasion of Turkey, uh, the, Turkey's invasion of Syria is really of no consequence to us. Do you know why we sanctioned Turkey if that's true, Mr. Hook? Um, <clears throat> the president did um, threaten sanctions on Friday and has imposed some yeah. of them on Monday. And, and I cheered them on. Um, I don't know how in the world Pompeo and Pence bring an end to the bloodshed before they leave the present Syria. If Syria wants to fight for the land, that's up to Turkey and Syria. So I view the situation on the Turkish border with Syria to be, for the United States, strategically brilliant. I don't see anything brilliant about this. Do you believe the Kurds are safer today than they were before Turkey's invasion? That's a question for Ambassador Jeffrey. Okay. I understand there's well, a member briefing happening. I'm yeah. the special representative for uh, Iran. Fair enough, fair enough. And I can answer the Iran questions on Syria. Okay, but fair enough. Okay, do you see Iran moving in to take the oil fields in Syria if we withdraw all of our forces? I have not seen any intelligence on that yet, but that doesn't... Uh, the, do you the, think that would be a logical move for uh, Iran if America abandons Syria? Iran's interests in Syria are mostly around supporting Assad and creating a strategic Well, if the oil fields are there for the taking and we leave, what's the likelihood that Iran would go in and would it matter? That's not something which I'm at liberty to speculate on. Okay. I, I, well, I'll, I'll I, speculate. Iran is massing at the borders, I speak. If we withdraw all of our forces and abandon the oil fields, Iran will surely go in and seize the oil fields. It will undercut the maximum pressure campaign, and our friends in Israel will be in a world of hurt. Do you agree with this? If Iran gets stronger in Syria, it's to the detriment of Israel. Yes. Uh, do you agree that it is in our national security interest to make sure that we have a partnership in Syria that will contain Iran's ambitions? Yes, that is our strategy, to reverse Iran's power projection and to deny them the revenues. You agree with me that if ISIS policy. comes roaring back, it will be very difficult to contain. The Kurds will have a hard time fighting Turkey and uh, taking care of the ISIS prisoners. That's a bad spot for the Kurds to be in. Do you agree? In terms of the position the Kurds are in, it's a question for Jim Jeffrey. Yeah, well, who would be the biggest winner of a breakdown in Syria? Would it be the Iranians? If there's a vacuum created by an American withdrawal, do you see Iran as a potential big winner? So I think we need to, this is obviously a very fluid situation. We don't want anything done in Syria to be to the detriment of our Iran policy. Okay, now Iran policy is to contain Iran, reduce their ability to project power and create upheaval. Do you agree with that? I didn't hear the last part, to do what? To create upheaval. Uh, yes, we are trying to minimize Iran's okay. ability to do that. Do you agree that if they seize the oil fields in Syria, they will be stronger and have more, more resources, not less? 
I don't know the odds of Iran taking okay. the oil if fields they in did. Syria, but I if, can say that, so what we have tried to do is that Iran no, does try to It's a simple use, question. If they did seize the oil fields in Syria, would it help their regime in terms of their capability? If, it, if they're able to get more revenue, well, then I that's would, always a bad thing. Uh, all I can say, that's not a hard question. The answer is yes. So my view is that the biggest winner of this decision by the president, if he follows through with it, to abandon Syria will be Iran, ISIS, and the biggest loser is going to be our Kurdish allies who fought bravely with us, our friends in Israel. And uh, do you see Turkey's actions going into Syria as undercutting our policies toward Iran? Our diplomacy, so I would say our troops uh, in the Northeast are there to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS. Our diplomats working on Syria are there to... Let's just talk about the troops are there to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS by partnering with the Kurds, isn't that correct? Syrian Democratic Forces. Beyond the ISIS mission and how it's accomplished. But we're not there in large enough numbers. Right. We're there in hundreds. It's the thousands of Kurdish fighters and Arab fighters and the Syrian Democratic Forces that we rely upon. Do you agree with that? That's a question, I think, for the person. I am the U.S. Well, Special Representative uh, for Iran. Never mind. I'm happy never mind. to speak to the Iran. I'll, I'll end this. I ask you a very simple question. Does Erdogan's invasion of Syria, putting our Kurdish allies at risk, driving President Trump out of Syria in terms of our military present, presence, do you think over time that will inure to the benefit of Iran? I believe that the strategy that we have put in place will accomplish our objectives to deny Iran the revenue does, it needs. Does your strategy include allowing Erdogan to slaughter the Kurds? Uh, that is not part of our strategy. Does your strategy include leaving the oil fields in Syria for the taking by Iran? I have not heard okay, thank any you. proposal to enable Iran to take oil fields in Syria. Uh, Senator Menendez. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I just associate myself with Senator Graham's line of questioning, and it's a, it's a very legitimate line of question, and it's a very serious one. Mr. Hook, we, uh, you referenced to EU actions, but the EU actions, some of which you read, uh, are nowhere in line uh, with the sanctions that we have levied against uh, Iran. That's a fair statement, right? Uh, no, it's not true because the EU sang the EU oh, has sorry, the, the same EU, set I'm of sorry. sanctions the, as yes, we have against Iran. The EU, unfortunately, and this is one of the weaknesses of the deal, is that the European Union. I think, Mr. Hook, I'm sorry. You're an excellent lawyer, and you've developed the expertise of the State Department to go on and on without being specific to an answer to a question. I have a very simple question. Do the EU sanctions line up with our sanctions against Iran? Yes or no? Yes. They <coughs> sanctioned Iran. So they, they have all the sanctions we no, have. No, no. I, I didn't know. That's you, what I mean. you would ask They're me. They're not as strong as the United States sanctions. You before heralded that our sanctions were more powerful and more consequential than when we had the EU with us. Oh, that's true. The EU Definitely. sanctions are not the same as ours. But they are, <clears throat> they are, I think, complementary because they sanction. I didn't ask you if they're complementary. I asked you, are they the same as ours? What is so difficult about well, that answer? I, I never said they're the same. I'm, 
I, I never, so I'm you, happy to review the transcript, I never said that. that there are a series of EU sanctions that were EU sanctions and actions the bot that, that have no, I said European. The I said, Europe, I said Let European. Finish. Let me finish. I didn't say EU, I, I though. get to it's ask important. the questions, you get to answer them. I'm happy to. The EU's actions do not equate to the sanctions that the United States has levied against Iran. That is a fair statement, is it not? Can you repeat it so that I understand it precisely? The EU actions do mm -hmm. not equate to the sanctions the United States has levied against Iran. Is that fair? They don't equate, and I never said they All right, equate. Okay. All right, fine, 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 fine. Now, you also said that Iran has a history of coming to the table because of sanctions. I was the author of most of those sanctions. The reality is, however, those sanctions were multilateralized by the European Union and others, and therefore the magnitude of the consequence was greater. That brought them to the table. But your sanctions unilaterally have not brought them to the table. You talked about having diplomatic leverage in Syria to deal and thwart Iran from where we want them. Well, the president just made a statement uh, that Russia's expansion after the U.S. departs is fine, and all they're fighting over there is a lot of sand. Well, when you have 14 to 18,000 ISIS fighters, when you have another 10,000 that were imprisoned by the Kurds that may be released, several hundred have already been released and regroups with them, that's about more than a lot of sand. When you create a land bridge for Iran to come into Syria and attack our ally, the state of Israel, that's about a lot more than sand. So I don't know what leverage you're referring to that we have in Syria because we have outsourced Syria to Russia. And talking about reconstruction funds as our leverage, not only is it years away, but I'm sure others will fill the void economically with Syria when and if that time ever comes because they already have a big stake in it, i.e. Russia, just to mention a few. So we don't really have any leverage in Syria. That which we have, we just expended. So my question is, at what point, if Iran continues to enrich and do all the things that you admitted they were doing as a result of them feeling that we walked away and they have no obligation anymore, if they continue to do that, at what point will the size and sophistication of Iran's nuclear program force the administration to consider whether military action is necessary to restrain Iran's nuclear program? I think that question is probably best left to a classified briefing. Have you, well, without getting into the specifics, have you come to such a determination? A, a determination of what? as to what is the size and sophistication of Iran's nuclear program that would force the administration to consider military action? We have... Without getting into what it is, have yeah, you come I, to a conclusion in, of what the in, dimensions are? In an unclassified are? setting, I can't have that discussion. I'm happy to have what, it what is, what privately. Is, this, is a simple, this is a simple answer that has nothing to do with classification. Oh, it does, because you've asked uh, how close is Iran to a nuclear weapon. And you've also asked well, about that's, the military that's, that, 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 that's all a matter of public information. I don't need you to testify to that oh. or to speak to it. I'm not asking you about that. I'm asking you, have you come to a conclusion 
that if Iran reaches X dimension and X sophistication, that will cause the necessity for a military action because sanctions haven't worked. Our military is always prepared for any contingency. Right, that, that, that's not an answer. Finally, uh, let me, uh, you agree that f the full enforcement of sanctions on Iran is, is incredibly important, right? Correct, yeah. And in our sanctions regime, it's weaker when people figure out how to evade them to the benefit of Iran. Is that not a fair statement? Correct. And do you believe that those who seek to evade U.S. sanctions on Iran should be prosecuted or fined to the fullest extent of the law? Uh, that is our policy, yes. We will sanction any sanctionable behavior. So in the case of Reza Zarab, who ran the biggest sanctions evasion scheme in recent history in which Turkish gold was traded for Iranian oil, he paid off Turkish government officials as well as officials at the Turkish Halk Bank to facilitate the transactions. Erdogan, who was the prime minister at the time, reportedly knew about the scheme. Zarab was arrested in March of 2016 by U.S. authorities and then hired Rudy Giuliani and former Attorney General Michael Mulcazy to represent him. You've testified here that General Mulcazy asked you to come, uh, ask, uh, to come see you. When he asked to come see you, did you know that Rudy Giuliani was going to accompany him? Uh, I, I don't recall um, if that was mentioned. I just know that he was there. He was there. He just showed up. So uh, when are, he came the friends. second time, did you know that he was going to accompany Mr. Marchese? I may or may not have. I'm not sure how it's material. Uh -huh. I, I just honored the request of uh, General Mukasey uh -huh. to do a meeting, and I did the meeting, and then no action was taken. Well, the price must have been right because both were willing to put their reputations on the line to represent someone who worked so hard to undermine U.S. national security interests. Uh, are you familiar with the report that the Washington Post had that both Mr. Giuliani and Mulcazy directly appealed to the president to exchange Zarab for an imprisoned American in the fall of 2017 in an Oval Office meeting that included then Secretary Tillerson? I haven't read the Post story and I'm not aware of the meeting. You're not aware of the meeting. You, Mr. Tillerson never spoke to you about such no. an effort. Uh, the October 10th report also says, as you've stated before, that Mr. Giuliani, in addition to Mr. Mulcazy, met with you to discuss the case at the State Department. Is that true? Uh, there, were, there were two meetings early in the administration. And, and it was about Mr. Uh, Zarab, right? I haven't said that. I just said it was on a consular issue. Well, first of all, a consular issue is about visas. It's about whether or not a, uh, a visa has been given for visitor's visa, for work permit, for investor permits, that's a counselor issue. You're trying to hide behind the term counselor issue when this was a, a meeting about someone who was in prison uh, seeking to evade U.S. sanctions on Iran through Turkey. That's, that's not a counselor issue. Um, it, it, it was presented as a counselor issue. That's so, not a consular issue. But it was presented as a consular issue. Well, that just I could call I could I could call a dog a cat. That doesn't mean that no, it, it ultimately it, 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 is a cat, right? It, it, it I can call concern. it anything to try to no, avoid uh, it, but that doesn't mean that's what no, it is. Uh, the, the meeting did concern a consular proposal, and uh, it was not acted upon. I think anybody who knows me knows that I vigorously enforce all sanctions against well, Iran. When, when we when we have the highest office in the land empowering people to seek to make a deal when you have the biggest violator of U.S. sanctions on Iran, it's hard to believe 
that we have a universal message on Iran that our sanctions will be vigorously enforced and preserved. And so no it, it's, it's, it, 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 it breaks credibility at the end of the day. I don't, I, I don't see how it does. We've had in place, there is no administration in history that has imposed more sanctions on Iran than this administration. There is no historic precedent for greater enforcement of our sanctions. And there was nothing that impacted our sanctions at all as a consequence of those two meetings, Mr. nothing. Mr. Sarab was the biggest violator of U.S.-Iran sanctions of any single individual. Is yes. that not true? In the prior administration, yes, and he's in jail. The bottom line I don't know what is, else there, the, I mean, the, we're enforcing our The bottom our line sanctions. is, but it, it wasn't, Health Bank it wasn't the prosecuted. prior administration who was letting free agents go to make a deal to let him loose. I, I didn't come make on, any deal. Come on, come stop, on, stop with that prior administration stuff. No, but you would, this is a question for... This is, for, a, this is a question that you met with them, not the prior administration. No, I... You I, met with them. And then took no action. So we're in full agreement on this, that we need to vigorously enforce our sanctions. And we have. Thank you very much, gentlemen. That will conclude the hearing. And uh, a sincere thank you to, uh, to you, Mr. Huck. I, uh, uh, I, I said at the beginning of the hearing that you were the right man for the job, and uh, certainly you've proven that to be the case. And I uh, thank you for your service to the country. I, uh, I, I uh, think you've been an excellent witness as far as describing uh, uh, how we're attempting to handle a very difficult situation. And uh, I want you to know that uh, the, the appreciation of the American people is, uh, is there for you. So thank you so much for the information of the members. The record will be, remain open. It will close the business on Friday. And uh, we'd ask, uh, Ms. Tuck, if you get questions to respond as promptly as possible, and those responses will be included in the record. The committee is hereby adjourned.